shield that guards the realms of men. We are Game of Microphones. Good morrow, faithful door holders and fart noise making sound effect engineers, and welcome <laughs> to Game of Microphones. I'm Lord Sterling, Sir Duncan, Warden of the Shadow Plains. And I'm Lady Rachel of House Fox. Titles, titles, titles. And this is episode 97. On this episode of our series rewatch, we're covering Game of Thrones season 6, episode 5, The Door. And in case you're not already aware, this series rewatch is from the perspective of someone who's current on the show. That means you've seen up through season 7. If not, there's still time to sacrifice your life to save your best friends, holding the door shut to the end even if it means being torn to shreds by a convulsing swarm of undead ice zombies. So you don't have to hear these spoilers. Warning. Warning. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. That was draining. Very draining. <laughs> so much in this episode. Such a good to, episode like, though. To chew on. Oh, big time. Yeah, all over the place in this episode. Yeah. You want to just jump right into it? Sure. What do you got for number five? So my number five is Kinvara. Nice. High Priestess. So I just have to say again, the, the these sets that they're on a lot of the time are so beautiful. The, right. the chandeliers, the fire chandeliers hanging from the ceiling to match like the oh. braziers down below the, the way the flame at like, you know, kind of just glistens off the stone in the pyramid. The architecture design itself. The staircase. I mean, truly, it's quite impressive. And I love Kinvara because she's super creepy. I mean, like we thought <laughs> Malasandra was creepy. Like, <laughs> and we thought Malasandra was old. I have a feeling right. this chick is like way older than Malasandra and way creepier. <laughs> So much so, yeah. I, I, this is my number five, also. And oh, nice. I agree that she is way, way creepy. Yeah. Some seriously suspenseful moments here. Yeah. And I really love this dialogue because Tyrion did see that the, the Red Priests were spreading Daenerys's testimony in Volantis, which I think is what gave him the idea to invite Kinvara 
to Marine mm-hmm. to, to, you know, spread the word in Marine, not just in Volantis or wherever else they are. So we get the man who is introducing Kinvara. You stand before the presence of Kinvara, high priestess of the Red Temple of Volantis, the flame of truth, the light of wisdom, the first servant of the Lord of Light. That's so and hardcore. I was like, holy shit, the first, <laughs> the first servant? Yeah, like if Melisandre's old, she's got the same necklace on. I, you know, I saw that, saw that ruby necklace and I was like, damn, yeah. this bitch must be real old. Like <laughs> really freaking old. Like if, if Melisandre is centuries old, she's probably millennia old. Oh my God. And talk about a glamour. She's quite beautiful. She has like those piercing blue eyes and that kind of dark red hair. And she looks very regal. And I, I made a connection because we find out that she's the first servant of the Lord of Light and, you know, travel over to Bravos, um, Jock and Hagar gives Arya a lesson on the first faceless men. And I know that we've talked a little ah, bit about very interesting. the parallel between the red God and the God of death. Yeah, totally. Um, so I thought that that was kind of interesting parallel to occur in the same episode of each other. I think yeah, we very can read interesting. into that and say that there's a connection to these two, what are deemed kind of different religions they're very similar in how they go about doing business with glamours <laughs> and sure. faces and all of that a lot of so, death and sacrifice to the to the god yeah so i i thought that that was a nice little parallel between two very similar religions and um we get Tyrion trying to speak valyrian again and oh, at yeah. least this time he like keeps it simple <laughs> Very <laughs> simple. The marine. <laughs> That's about the extent of my Valyrian. <laughs> yeah. And, and she's not very talkative. She's just like quiet. I think unnerving. she's tapping into because there's fire all around them. There's ah. fire in the chandeliers. There's fire in next to her and around her. So I think she's like tapping in and like feeling Varys and tearing out. I also found it really funny because we get of was it a couple seasons ago or maybe last beginning of last season when Tyrion's gloating about his diplomacy skills when they're waiting for the Prince of Dorne. Right, right, <laughs> right. He, he like totally kind of fails at that. Blows right by him basically. Well, this kind of happens too because he's like, welcome to Marine. And she just sits there and says nothing. And <laughs> he's like, um, well, thanks for coming. Right, <laughs> Let's yeah. get down to business. <laughs> um, at, yeah. He starts asking for help and she's like, I, I, I came to help. You don't need to persuade me. She already knows why or why she's there, basically what they want from her. And that's, that's remindful of the way that Davos would go to see Melisandre and she would already know what he was there for, etc. So we've seen this from priestesses of the Lord of Light before or priests where they already seem to know everything that's going on around them, even without the people around them having to tell them. So it's just kind of cool that we're seeing that with Dan- with uh, Tyrion and Varys here, that they're starting to <laughs> talk with her and realize that she already realizing that she already knows what they want to say and why. <laughs> yeah, and I think this isn't um, too far fetched because we know that Danny is making the rounds in popularity with this religion because yeah, we see it a couple episodes ago in Volantis, which she does mention to Tyrion. Right. Like, she must have been looking. 
Yeah, she maybe she saw through that priestess or something. Like it's it's crazy how she knew that. There, everything seems to be connected, you know. Yeah, and I thought it was kind of interesting because again, we have a little parallel going here. We have Bran tapping into the Weirwood network, yep. and we also have this like Red Priestess. Even Malisandra, I bet you this Kinvara probably has more clear vision than Malisandra does, just pure because of age and centuries on the planet. Maybe. Um, but she's tapping into like the fire network. So we have yeah, the exactly. ice network happening and we have a fire network happening, which I found b- a beautiful parallel because nice. it's a song of ice and fire. <laughs> That's really cool. So, yeah. So we uncover that Kinvara in particular thinks that Danny is the princess who was promised. Yeah. Um, because she, she was ready to promote her big time. Yeah. Because she was born from fire and her dragons are fire made flesh. Yeah. She was born from fire when she birthed the dragons born as the mother of dragons and then born again in fire this time as the, the great Khaleesi of the, uh, you know, of the, the massive Khalasar at this point. Yeah. So we see, you know, the fiery princess kind of converging with this fire religion. And it would make sense that many followers of the, you know, red God or the Lord of light may look at Danny as the princess who was promised. I still stand by my theory that it's going to be her child. That is, (laughs) I think it's probably going to be somebody that's already in the story, but I can see where you're going with that. Um, it's an interesting parallel with Danny and the, the Lord of light. We have that, that happening. And then we have this connection with Arya and the God of death. And in both cases, they seem drawn together and have similar, you know, things that connect them with that God. Like Arya has always been connected with the God of death from, you know, right, right off the bat. She's always sort of worshiped him on her own and even just finding her way to the black, the house of black and white. And Danny has always had this connection with, with fire, basically. And so, it's in true. each case, uh, in each case, the 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 god, whether it's the god of death or the Lord of Light, they're they're too intense for our main character that's getting involved with it. Like with Arya, she's not down with the indiscriminate killing of the god of death. And with the actress, for instance, she doesn't go through with it. And then with Danny. Uh, as is illustrated in this episode with Kinvara and Tyrion, she's like, don't you want your queen to be worshipped and obeyed? And Tyrion's like, I could settle with obeyed. You know, like we don't want to be worshipped. Yeah. That's a little too intense. So in both cases, there's never going to be like a perfect merging between either Arya and the God of Death or Danny and the Lord of Light because the the pure religion is too extreme for <laughs> for either of those characters' Definitely. morality, basically. Yeah, they're not fanatics, which we kind of get into later on in the scene. Yeah. Um, Varys, I love Varys with his little, um, I think, was it Lisa, that Lady Lisa that brought up the, his sleeves and how he sticks his hands in his sleeves. Oh, yeah, 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 and, totally. Yeah. So he's standing there like that. His hands are in his sleeves. <laughs> yeah, his sleeves great. are hanging down. And he has this very perplexed look on his face because... Being that he is the little bird wrangler, <laughs> he knows that another priestess in Westeros 
claimed that Stannis Baratheon was the prince who was promised. Yep. Plus, he hates sorcerers. So yes, he's just edging to get his word in here. Yeah. Yeah. He's naturally distrusting of Kinvara and the the Lord of Light and their ways of sorcery and magic. Yeah, he goes, you know, he was beaten at King's Landing and in Battle of the Blackwater by Tyrion, you know, like right here next to me. I love that. Then Kinvara like glances over at Tyrion like, oh, man, yeah, that's true. Wow. That's pretty intense. And, you know, and, you know, last that. We all heard he had been defeated again, this time for good, up at Winterfell. Yeah, he deoed. So what the fuck? Like, do you guys just jump around? And so Varys goes, well, I suppose it's hard for a fanatic to to admit a mistake. Isn't yes. that the whole point of being a fanatic? You're always right. Everything is the Lord's will. And I love, I loved her response. She's like, everything is the Lord's will. <laughs> But men and women make mistakes. People are fallible. So it's not necessarily <laughs> Melisandre's fault, for instance. <laughs> and Varys, Varys is still not having it, like, to what you said. He does not like magic. He does not like sorcery. Yeah. And then this is where Kinvara, like, mind fucks him. <laughs> she totally mind fucks him here. Yeah. She goes on to say... Everyone is what they are and where they are for a reason. You know, sometimes these terrible things happen. Like, take you, Lord Varys. When that second-rate sorcerer threw your parts into the fire, like, didn't you hear a voice talking? Like, how could you deny that this is real? Yeah. The look of astonished, like, he goes from skeptical to what the fuck yeah, he's, to <laughs> astonished to like true concern on his face when she's done talking yeah there's a progression <laughs> of him looking more and more aghast as it goes until he's looking yeah. legitimately terrified because <laughs> do you remember should i tell you what the voice said and he's like what on earth is going on right should now? i like, tell you the name of the one who spoke first of all how does this person know this? Yeah, it like it goes through like a series of levels. First, she's like, what happened to you when you were a child? And he's like, huh? If not for your mutilation, then he's like, huh? At the hand of a second rate sorcerer. And every every time she says something, he's like astonished that she His knows more and more. So he's like, first of all, surprised that she knows that he was mutilated at the hand of a sorcerer. Then he's surprised to know that she knew about the voice. And then on top of everything, she's like, would you like to know what what the translation was? What he said? Who it was speaking? And he's like, I oh know. my God. Yeah. He looks so fucking scared at that moment. It's hilarious. And she uh, reaches out and touches his arm as he looks in the most terrified. I know. And he's like looking at her. Yeah, he's like just like completely like a deer in the headlights. And she's like, as, as long as you're true to Daenerys, you have nothing to fear from me. Basically, uh, <laughs> he's just like, oh, my God. Amazing. So crazy. Yeah. And he, he and Tyrion are both just shocked into silence. I loved I just loved everything about that whole dynamic and. Especially because Tyrion was trying to like lessen Varys's comments you know my friend is very skeptical about religion it's like skeptical (laughs) he's like completely against it like he doesn't want anything to do with it 
Yeah, as Ferris was getting sort of like crazier and crazier about the situation with Stannis, like more and more questioning of Kinvara and like accusatory about their trustworthiness and how they're been, they've been wrong about this stuff. Tyrion is looking more and more uncomfortable. <laughs> I think Tyrion's coming again from the political perspective is like, dude, it doesn't matter. Like, we just need people that other people will listen to to spread the word that Danny is the reason that, you know, the civil war has stopped and that the killings have stopped. Right. He's like, Shh, come on. We just need her on our side. Like, be quiet. Shut the fuck and up, also dude. you don't want to piss her off because she's terrifying. <laughs> she knows things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She burns and she knows things. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So I know this is your number five. Did you want to add anything? Uh, just this, the, she's super, super terrifying here as she's disclosing this information that she knows to Varys and stepping closer yeah. with each piece of information until finally he's like looking terrified and she's right next to him and she reaches out and touches him and he's like paralyzed with a fear. It's just so intense. It is. The music is really great intense. and yeah, just an awesome scene. And I think, I feel like going back to like Varys, um, I think he's kind of like a germaphobe because he's always has his hands covered and he's always washing his hands. And hmm. I think her touching him was like awkward on multiple levels. Of <laughs> <light>. <laughs> he reminds me of the guy that God, what's that? What's that TV show? The one with like the briefcases. It's with Howie. What's his face? The bald guy. Howie. Oh, um, deal or no deal. Right, 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 right. He, Varys kind of reminds me of that host. His name is Howie. Howie I can't Mandel. remember. Howie Mendel. Yeah, because he's like a total germaphobe. That's great. Like Monk. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Monk is a great show. Yeah. Do you want to move on to your number four then? Sure. My number four is The Touch of Ice. Okay. Bran getting touched by the Night King. Oh, he saw me. (laughs) So the whole little scene starts off with Bran sitting alone in under the tree and the Thread Raven is like in a warging vision or something. So Bran is just sitting there kind of bored or maybe the guy's asleep. I don't know. He's an old man. So either way, but Bran is like uh, restless and you can tell he's going to do something. It's leading up to something. Mm-hmm. So he crawls himself over to the <laughs> the tree and goes into a vision by touching the, the weirwood roots. And then we're at the same field that we saw earlier in the episode with the stones placed in a, a spiral shape around this massive weirwood tree. Which I I noted because we've seen these types of spiral shapes before. Um, from the children of the forest, we see them in the, actually the very first pilot episode. The bodies of the wildlings are placed in kind of a symbolic symbol. Yeah, and there's then a couple the times. horses up at beyond the wall. Yeah, um, the, at the fist of the first men, the horse parts were placed in a spiral, and then we also see it again on the cave drawings. Um, in the on in the dragonstone, dragon, in, on dragonstone, yeah. Nice. Yeah, the spiral like this is often associated with the Milky Way galaxy. So um, there could be some kind of symbolism in there to decipher from that or something. I don't know. Yeah, I just think it's 
the show's way of showing that like the hieroglyphic type or cave drawing type simple language of reading, you know, symbols that this occurs on this planet too. And nice. it can be traced back to well before like the settlers came. So I thought it was just a nice parallel to our, our world because we have these cave drawings in, in our world too. Yeah, totally. And bizarre stone structures <laughs> and weird patterns. Stonehenge. I've been to Stonehenge. It's awesome. Oh, really? Nice. There's another site in France too called Karnak with like thousands of stones all standing upright, um, placed in rows over miles and miles. Kind of similar to the way that the stones are standing in this episode. Yeah. So it's snowy now at this same site and Bran is looking around and he he's like, wow, this is crazy. Cause this is where he saw the creation of the white Walker earlier by the children of the forest by leaf. And so he looks around and sees, bam, the army of the dead, just chilling. And he's like, what, 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 what? And starts walking over towards them. Cause why the fuck not? Right. Up until this point, he's been sort of like a extra dimensional figure in his visions and hasn't had any direct interaction with anybody through the werewood. It doesn't appear that the people in his visions can see him. Right. Yeah. So he's sort of like this ethereal being kind of moving around undetected. So he's walking through the army and nobody's looking at him. They're all just kind of like doing their own thing. And they're, they're really great looking. Did you see the first one that he walked by had like half a skull? Yeah. So sick. Really great makeup for all these guys. So good. And he's walking through and walks out through a clearing. And there are the horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the night king sitting there with his weapon on his back. And all of a sudden he turns and looks right at Bran and Bran freaks out because nobody's ever looked right at him before. He thought he saw Lyanna looking right at him, Lyanna Stark, but she was looking at Hodor. Yeah, at Willis. Yeah, yeah, Willis. Good point. So he turns, and all of a sudden now, the whole army sees him. And he's like, fuck, 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 looking all around. My stomach dropped when I first watched this episode. I thought Bran was done for. Yeah, right? Yeah, it's understandable. So he's he's like, he freaks out, and then he turns back around, and the Night King is right there. And he kind of recoils and jumps back, but it's too late. The Night King grabs him by the arm and he wakes Ugh. up out of the vision screaming. He saw me! The Night he King! He saw me! He saw me! Yeah. He touched you. And the, the Three-Eyed Raven knows. He's like, he touched you. And Bran doesn't want to admit it at first. It's pretty funny. Yeah. He's like, uh, he, I don't know. He was close. I don't think so. <laughs> but he's like, he touched you. I, you know, he, I know it basically. He's like, I know. And so he pulls up and up his sleeve and he's got a handprint, an icy handprint, a frosted handprint. And it's paralleling the whole Jorah thing with his grayscale on his arm. Um, they're both like have this infection kind of thing on their arm. That's that (laughs) he's been marked leading them to death. Yeah. They've been (laughs) marked for death in both cases. Yeah. Good call. So I, I just thought that was kind of an interesting parallel between the two there. One is of ice again, and one is associated with Valyria, which is associated with fire. And, fire. You know, so that's kind of cool. 
Ice. Sort of how there's the two networks that you were talking about, the Weirwood mm-hmm. Ice Network and the Fire, <laughs> fire Memory Network or whatever. <laughs> fire fire Wi-Fi and Ice Wi-Fi. Yeah, and then we've got also <gasps> Fire Zombies, Ice Zombies, and now um, Grayscale <laughs> and and this other fucking the, bizarre the, the condition. Mark. Yeah, the, the mark. The mark of the beast. The ice mark. So... The three-eyed raven's like, oh, he knows you're here. Get the now, fuck out. Yeah, Time he's to go. Come for Bye. You. <laughs> yeah. Now that, now that he's touched you, you have his mark on you and he can find you. He can get in here. So you guys have to get the hell out of here. And Bran's like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Like everybody's been warning me. We talked about how Jojen told him not to stay in the visions too long when he was yep. in summer. And about how the three-eyed raven is telling him, you know, it's it's too you, you don't want to spend too much time in the Weirwood network. You'll if you it's like being underwater, you'll drown. And even if there aren't physical, like there are apparently physical repercussions, which we we also speculate we're seeing after this crazy download, and when he sort of becomes computer brand, computer yeah, brand, it's like a short circuit that occurs in the brain. Yeah. So even if there aren't. <laughs> Physical side effects. Apparently, there are also other dangers that we we're unaware of, like being touched by the Night King. I also think that because Bran is so new at these visions, that that's the reason that the Three-Eyed Raven needs to be with him is to kind of lead him through how to do it properly. Yeah, versus probably. going in by himself. Because I mean, of course, the first time Bran goes in to this network by himself. Not only, I mean, is he being seen, but he's being touched. And Yeah, that's I th- crazy. I think that um, if the Three-Eyed Raven were with him, that wouldn't have happened because the Three-Eyed Raven knows how to control these visions. Whereas Bran Maybe. is just in the vision, but he's not like controlling. It's like a like a cloak of invisibility, if you will. You know, like there's a technique to these visions right where you can like either just observe or also be part of it theoretically potentially or something. Yeah. And I think because yeah, Bran knows? is so powerful and he can warg into humans, which is extremely uncommon yeah, like unheard and, rare of. and unheard of that. Maybe that's why the three eyed Raven is, is giving him doses of these visions because as we came to see, he when he wants to, he can interact with um, calling out to Ned at the Tower of Joy. Yeah. And then obviously what happens with Hodor later. Yeah. So I think the three eyed Raven has to be very careful with Bran and exposing him in the proper amounts so he can get Bran to do it without harm coming to the past that would affect the future. Yeah. And harming the future as well it's sort of like when a superhero gets their powers for the first time and they they like crush a car or something accidentally yeah they like don't know how to use them (laughs) yeah 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 like in man of steel or something like that yeah so the three-eyed raven's like you guys need to get out of there all of you and quick and brand's like fuck i i'm sorry i didn't mean to do that and the 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 three-eyed raven's just like the time has come for what brand asks and he says for you to become me like what the fuck does that mean (laughs) to become the three-eyed raven or to become actually that guy like aren't there some theories out there that the three-eyed raven is bran in the future 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so for you to become me, it's like, well, this is now your... I'm looking at my past. I'm a three-eyed raven. I'm looking at my past, and this is the point where I turned into the three-eyed raven. Yeah, and this is the <laughs> point where I die now, and it's just you, and that's it's just mm-hmm. me. You know, it's just and you'll just live one a thousand years in this weird fucking time loop that we've t- <laughs> we can go me. on and on about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so bizarre. So Brand's like, but am I ready for this? Like, what the hell? Like, and he's hell like, no, nope, nope. <laughs> you're not ready and it's gonna suck so and your eyes are white and they're gonna stay white (laughs) and get ready for the ultra download just like the pilot episode of that show chuck where the intersect computer gets downloaded into his brain through like thousands of images and he's just like gets all mind warped that's basically what's happening to bran right now it's like google photos on steroids oh shit (laughs) <laughs> so yeah that's uh that's my number four the touch of ice nice how about you what's your number four my number four is danny overlooking the ruins of uh the dosh clean with jora and dario and i chose this as my number four because this is when Danny finally lets Jorah back into the friend zone. Ah, uh, yes, because he was—he wasn't even in the friend zone before this. <laughs> he wasn't even <laughs> in the friend zone. He was banished. That's so hilarious. He was banished from the friend zone. From That's the amazing. friend zone. <laughs> <laughs> so and she even says it. I banished you twice. You came back twice. Yep. And I wanted her to say, "And you saved my life." twice Twice. (laughs) yeah (laughs) because she's he saved her life at the at the daznax pit Mm -hmm. and he saved her life in a way here he came to rescue her and helped execute her plan of walking out of the fire yep totally so she's like i can't send you away because clearly clearly you're like a magnet we'll just come right back she's like i can't take you back i can't send you away and he's (sighs) she starts to walk towards him and he just like recoils back. Oh, so brutal. You must send me away. And it's like, it's so sad. And he kind of rolls up his sleeve to show her that he's covered in grayscale. And Danny looks horrified. I mean, clearly she knows what this is. Yeah, she's in total shock. Yeah. And she's like, how is this possible? Like, can you cure it? How long does it take to spread? Like, what? He's like, What's uh, yeah, gonna happen to you? he doesn't know if there's a cure. He doesn't know how long it takes, but he has, he does say that he's seen what happens when it, when it, you know, progresses. Yes. Up close and personal. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, <laughs> he's like, I'll end things before that. Yeah. And so I love that she starts to cry here. Yeah. It's so rough. It is. It's so sad. Like finally she's accepting bringing him back and <laughs> kind of and, I know, and she's, she's like, losing him against her will this time. Yeah. And he goes, please don't be sorry. All I ever wanted was to serve you. Tyrion was right. I love you. And I was like, oh God, that's like what a sad moment. Tyrion Lannister was right. I love you. I'll always love you. 
and the camera pans over to Dario and Dario's like, mm-hmm, I'm just going to kick some dirt. This is awkward to be around. I thought when I saw Dario there after the whole um, fire scene last episode, the way I interpreted Dario's expression was like, oh, he seems to like to get it now to <laughs> like to understand oh, okay. the way Jora feels and why he's so devoted to her because she's like this transcendent being. And so I, th- I've thought that he's, he sort of felt for, for Jorah in that scene. Yeah. Well, I can see that, you know, and I think maybe if we go down that line of thought that, you know, maybe Dario actually feels kind of bad for like badgering him on their journey to find Danny, you know, like talking about like not being able to ride the dragon and like you're old and undeserving <laughs> basically. I think maybe it just kind of shut him up a little bit. I think that Dario feels more insignificant now than he used to. Now that he sees what Danny's capable of and he's like, Oh, maybe I could end up like Jorah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true too. Uh, So he's like, Oh, like I think he like gets it more now. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, he goes, I'll always love you. Goodbye. Khaleesi. I love how he says Khaleesi. <laughs> yeah. 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 He, it's a, it's a catch line or a catchphrase kind of for him. Yeah. Khaleesi. Khaleesi. <laughs> and, um, he starts to walk away. Don't you walk away from me, Jorah the Andal. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> to your point, everyone always calls him Jorah the Andal. The Andal yeah. Love yeah. it. And he turns back around. Oh, and she's like, you, I did not give you permission to leave. Yeah, you have not been dismissed. You swore to obey my commands for the rest of your life. And Jorah's like, yeah, that's why I've come back like two times and won't take no for an answer. And I love this. She goes, well, I demand you to go out and cure yourself and don't stop. Go from the narrow sea all the way to the far east least to find a cure because you need to be by my side when i take the seven kingdoms and that's a serious moment yeah for sure remember when uh when Tyrion and jorah showed up and they meet danny they're like in front of her in the throne room and she's trying to find a way out of killing jorah basically talking to Tyrion, and she's like what do i do you know and he's like well he he obviously loves you. He's devoted to you. I think he would die. He says he would die for you, and I have no reason not to believe him. But you can't have him by your side when you take Westeros, you know? So this, she's like changing her mind about that sentiment. And those seeds that Tyrion planted in that, in that scene that I was talking about have grown and are flowering now as she's realizing that he is devoted to her and she's had time to forgive him. And so they bear fruit this scene as she brings him back into the fold. And finally, for once he he's leaving her, but he's now leaving with a purpose. He feels so proud too. like you, you see his chest like lift and yeah. <laughs> he, he feels like exactly what you just said. Like he has a purpose again, has a reason to fight. Mm-hmm. Cause I think Jorah might have given up. I think he would have, like he said, ended it probably far quicker than need be. And he would have never probably looked for a cure. Yeah. Um, if she hadn't taken him back. So I think that her propelling that if she hadn't have 
given him that command, I don't think he would have ever looked for a cure and he would have never been cured. He would have never gone to the Citadel right. and met Sam. I love this scene. It's so good. It is. It's good to see them just like back on good terms again. Yeah. The, the tension is gone. Yeah. Danny has her team. Yep. She just needed some time to, <laughs> to forgive him and yeah, miss him. Which, you know, is kind of understandable. Yep. Like, he did spy on her. <laughs> totally. And then lied to her about it, which he, is... Or, or with, withheld information, which, yep. I, you know, is basically the lying. Basic, yeah, the, the big problem was that he didn't trust her with the truth, right? That he just didn't trust her. Mm-hmm. And that was he insulting didn't. to her. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my number four. Nice. And that's also my number three. Oh, nice. So, what is uh, your number four? My number four, we already covered, I think, which is uh, the touch of ice. Yeah, because we both oh, have yeah. the same number five also. So okay. what is your number three? My number three is Sansa and Littlefinger. Nice. That's a that great was- scene, too. Uh, what a combo with Sansa and Brienne. The yes. gang- gangster level is to the 11. The freaking Amazon gorgeous women like coming to throw down on Littlefinger. <laughs> yeah, because Sansa's really tall too. Yeah, like Gwendolyn Christie's Hilarious. like over six feet and I think... Yeah, she's 6'3". Uh, yeah, Sophie Turner's like 5'11". So these are tall women. <laughs> yeah, super tall. <laughs> Love it. So I think what I'll do is just start kind of at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, sounds good. When Sansa is sitting knitting in the chair and she gets a letter and she's reading it. It's got the Mockingbird sigil. Yeah. And she goes, how far is Mole's town? And so just from the visual of seeing the Mockingbird sigil, sigil, we can, can kind of deduce that Littlefinger is in Mole's town. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so Littlefinger is looking sheepish as usual and standing in the, in the middle of a dark room, <laughs> like a torn up shack yeah. because I mean, the town, town was sacked when well, it was sacked. Oh yeah. True. I don't think anyone lives there anymore. Good point. Um, Good point. Yeah. So I think it's deserted, Damn. which is actually a safe place for them to meet in a way. Yeah. Um, you know, no one will see Littlefinger with her. Which I'm sure is why he chose the the look the locale. The ruins of Molestown. <laughs> the ruins of Molestown. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good spot. And he goes, I'm so glad basically I'm so glad to see that you've escaped unharmed. And she's like, unharmed? Oh man. Like, are you fucking kidding me right now? So intense. And she makes a point to say that he you know, he left her face untouched. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, well, you know, I rode north uh, to help you out. The the veil is camped out at Moat Kalen. Yeah, like I came to your aid. She's like, to my aid. And I love how she flat out asked him, did you know? Did you know that this was going to happen to did, me? Yeah, did you know that Ramsey is a nutcase? Yeah. If you didn't know, you're an idiot. If you <laughs> did know, you're my enemy. Another great line. Mm, I love it. Yeah, and I love how she there. like gets closer to him too. She's yeah. like, I'm not fucking around. Like I'm not just standing my ground. I'm encroaching on yours. Yeah, like, totally. Like we're um, on the offensive talk about, like, now. 
yeah, like body language type, you know, most people when they're standing off to one another, yeah, they don't move. When you advance into someone's, you know, personal bubble, that's, a, you know, you're saying yeah, something with your body. Yeah, it's an aggressive posturing. Yeah, and I love that she does that to him. Totally. <laughs> She's squeezing him, pressure, increasing pressure. <laughs> Yeah, and now she's going to like start mind fucking with him and make him feel super uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Because he has a weird, we've talked about this many times in previous episodes, his love for Sansa is very complex and confusing. He looks at her like a daughter. He looks at her like a lover, like like someone he wants to, you know, be in love with and get married to. And so... For her to talk about what she, you know, she actually makes this, um, you know, ladies should not be talking about this stuff. What what happened on our wedding night? He never hit or he never hurt my face because he needed that. Um, But the rest of me, basically, I was mutilated and tortured and beaten and raped and probably sodomized and all sorts of other freaky fucking shit that you can imagine Ramsey Bolton doing. Like, ugh. It's horrible. Little fingers like, um, I, I don't know what to say here. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I don't know what to say. And she's like, what do you think he did to me? Right. Yeah. First he does. He declines to answer. Yeah. You know, he's like, I can't even begin to contemplate. Like he's really trying to avoid answering. And she's like, again, like, what do you think he did to me? And after a moment of silence, Brienne starts to, she reaches for her sword Lady Sansa mm-hmm. asked you a question. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> Dude, that combo is so gangster. Yeah. And he's like, uh, I think he beat you. Looks like probably he beat you. She's like, oh, yeah, that that was like that was like the easy part. She's like, yeah, he beat me. That's like the least of what he did to me. You know, because right. Littlefinger, Littlefinger knows what he probably has done to her at the, you know at this point and he's like did he cut you she's like maybe you did know about him you know and little fingers trying to slither out of this he's like i'm so sorry i had no idea i made a mistake people make mistakes i underestimated a stranger yeah so i was wondering at this point i know we've speculated in the past that maybe Littlefinger didn't know about ramsey to the extent of ramsey's craziness mm-hmm. like what do you th- what do you think now i'm um, still not sure i mean he he's claiming that he really doesn't didn't know but he knows that he likes to cut people apparently so i don't know either he learned subsequently or he didn't know to the extent of his craziness i'm not really sure what do you think I think he didn't know at first, but I think he's also been keeping tabs on Sansa from afar. So I think he might have a clue that she wasn't doing well. Like he left and some of his own spy network in Winterfell, basically. Possibly. Like he's got somebody there. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Because he's like Varys, you know, he has a spy network of his own, yeah. basically. Yeah, he does. So I, I I wouldn't put it past him that he had eyes in Winterfell, which I mean, clearly are not going to be inside the bedroom right. um, at all times. But like reporting that she's locked in the tower, basically, like and she's not allowed out. And, and maybe keeping tabs on Ramsey's crazy activities. Yeah. Flaying that old lady. And like, oh, he likes to, yeah, flay people and like do fucked yeah. up shit, hunt people and 
feed people to his dogs. So I think I think at this point he knew that maybe Sansa wasn't being treated the best, but I don't think he still had a clue of how how um, abused she was. He'd heard that she'd escaped from Winterfell, and that's something that I imagine Ramsay would want to keep a secret. Yes, so he must absolutely. have somebody on the inside. Yeah, good good catch. Good catch on that for sure. Mm, thanks. And um, so Sansa goes on, you know, saying like, I'm really should not be talking about this, but I imagine that a brothel keeper talks about the shit he did to me all the time. And this line, like, it just hurts to even listen to anyone say. Yeah. Just like, I can still feel it. I don't mean in my tender heart. It's, it still pains me so I can still feel what he did in my body standing here right now. So not to my body, but in my body. Yeah. That's fucking like, nuts. I don't even want to think about what was going on with yeah. that whole situation. Uh, what? Uh, yeah. Crazy shit. Just as long as, uh, as long as she can still produce an air. Yeah. That's the so, limit basically. Yeah. It's horrible. And she, she goes on, you know, like you, you promised you would protect me. And I will. <laughs> yeah. I don't believe you, dude. You must believe me when I tell you that I will. Nope. I don't believe you. It's, it's horrible. She's like, you can't protect me. You can't even, you wouldn't even be able to protect yourself <laughs> if I tell Brian to cut you down right now. And why shouldn't I? <laughs> and he looks so sheepish here. She's oh, yeah. like. You're right. And it's funny. He's, he's never armed. He's never got anybody there to defend himself. Like, remember that time when Cersei is asking him about like power? Oh, and she and just she's like, this him. is power. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. spin around in a circle, jump up and down, you know, cut Peter yeah, Baelish's throat. Yeah. No, wait. Take, you know. take three steps back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's power. So this kind of always happens. Littlefinger ends up squirming his way out of situations like that time with Cersei or when Ned... He's bringing him to the brothel and Ned like strangles him at the, at the door yeah. <laughs> or when John strangles him in the crypt or something, you know, he's always squirming out on his own and uh, he just finally can't do it anymore at that, at that time up in Winterfell when Arya gets him. Yeah. And he's not trying anymore. to squirm out. He doesn't have his, like protection basically on him <laughs> and uh, it, it fails finally. For sure. And um, Sansa you know, she calls him out on his bullshit. She's like, you freed me from the Lannisters and then you sold me to the Boltons. They yeah. both murdered my family. Like, how could you honestly think I was safe with the Boltons? Right. Like, what what part of that equation made sense to you? Out of the frying pan and into the fire. Like, she escapes one group of people that killed her family and betrayed them and she's delivered right <laughs> yeah. into another <laughs> hotbed of traitorousness. It's horrible. <laughs> And she trusted him. She trusted that she would be okay. And I think that's right. where she's getting at with him is I trusted you. Right. Sort of like Tom and trusting his mom. Like you don't think that they have any bad intentions, but they're working behind your back and betraying you. People that you're like kind of looking at like family who have positioned themselves at least to, to, you know, be your family. Yeah. So Littlefinger tries to get a little bit, save some grace here. He's like, I would do anything to take back everything that's happened to you. And I do feel some type of genuine response to that. I think what he is saying is true. Maybe not like 
totally true, but I think that he would have, if he would have known exactly what was happening, like making Reek yeah. watch and the, and the, the beatings and being locked away and, and the rape and all of that, I think he would have tried to do something. But if, if he started getting tangled in a web that he didn't want to be tangled in, he would have stopped, you know, cause it's always about little finger at the end of the day. Right. In the end, it's always about little finger. But yeah, I think him. he would have avoided that situation if he had known he could have. Yeah. Like he wouldn't have willingly given her up probably to be abused in that way. Yeah. I don't, I don't think. I don't think so. I would like to think not. So I'm just going to go with that yeah. in this extremely dark story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to go with that whole situation. But yeah, so he's like, well, I have an army. Like, I can help out. And she's like, I have an army, too, basically. Yeah, like, I don't need you, you motherfucker. Littlefinger's like, well, it's your brother's army. But okay. <laughs> and he's your half-brother, so he's not even a Stark. And he just kind of, mm -hmm. like, leaves her on that thought. And she's like, fuck you, motherfucker. Damn it, I don't want to have to need you. <laughs> Uh, he's he's such a bastard. He's always planting seeds of doubt. Like when they were at that inn on the road and Brienne came and he was planting seeds of doubt about her character, about her capability, about all these different aspects of her existence <laughs> and uh, about her talent. You know, he's just doing the same thing now. Can you trust John? He's only your half brother. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's not your army. It's your brother's army. Oh, God, he's such a little he's a worm. Twerp. Yeah. He does. He reminds me of a worm. That's great. That's so funny. Yeah. So that was my number three. Wormy Wormster. It was good seeing him squirm a little bit. Like he's like, do you want me to beg for my life? I'll do it. <laughs> a worm that squirms. A squirm worm. Oh, totally. Yeah. It was funny watching him squirm a little. I always love it when Littlefinger has to squirm. Um, yeah, definitely. The actor that plays Littlefinger does such a great job of looking sheepish is the way I Aiden describe Dillon. him. I've been enjoying watching him on Project Blue Book on History. Oh, really? Playing Dr. Alan Hynek, who ran Project Blue Book for the Air Force in the, uh, in the, in the 50s, cataloging UFO oh, cool. sightings and unexplained phenomena. Yeah, pretty awesome show. Nice. So oh, there was one intense point here where Sansa's like, he's like, uh, remember he's like, he's like, whatever that you ask that is in my power, I'll do. And she's like, what if I want you to die here and now? <laughs> yeah. And he looks at her dead in the eyes and he's like, so seriously, then I'll then die. I'll die. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It is great. Anything else you want to add about that scene? No. What's your number three? My number three was Danny and Jora back in his graces. Good graces. I, I oh yeah, it. that's right. Okay. So what's your, let's do your number two. My number two is Arya and the play. Oh, good. I wanted to talk about this, but I didn't have nice. it in my uh, top three or top five. Ah, this is one of the ones you had trouble. Yeah. I wanted to <laughs> include it between. because it was super important for Arya's development, but I just thought some of the other scenes were just stronger. Sure. So it starts off before we get to the play with Arya getting her ass whipped by the wave. <laughs> as as usual. usual. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's getting nailed and beat up and knocked on the ground. And the wave is taunting her verbally. And uh, like, you should just go home. You know, you're not you, like, lady you just Stark. Waste your time. 
Yeah. And Arya has a pretty cool move where she jumps from her back up back up onto her feet without using any hands to propel herself, which was pretty nice. She's like a break dancer. It was cool. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So that was pretty cool. And uh, she oh, like gets in her fighting stance and the waif reaches out her hand and drops her staff. And I like how she like Arya. turns like she's so robotic, like she stops and turns and like tilts her head like you want to go? <laughs> I yeah. sense a spar coming on. Yeah. And do you know this, this scene reminded me of the Matrix? Yes. And she's like dodging all that shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> just like Neo in the Matrix. Yeah. So we, we, we know the waif was basically channeling the T-1000 from Terminator 2 and the chase scene through the market <laughs> when she's chasing Arya later in the season. Here first, we get to see her be Neo from the Matrix. Doing some crazy moves. Yeah. That must be kind of fun being the actor playing the waif. And getting to do these scenes that are like pretty much pretty blatantly homages to some pretty great action heroes or yeah. action characters. And she least. does a good job too. Yeah, like she's definitely. fast. Yeah, <laughs> dodging all the uh, the blows, <laughs> deflecting everything, and yeah, running too. It's so funny. Always get a kick out of that. So she, you know, continues beating up Arya, knocks her on the ground, and she's like, "You'll never be one of us, Lady Stark." And turns, and Jacken is there. And Jacken says, she has a point, um, which I thought was interesting because he didn't say a girl. He said she, which yeah. is like a grammatic change. Um, but also he's basically acknowledging the truth here, which he we've speculated he already knows that Arya will never truly be one of the faceless men. Because that's what the waif is saying. You're never going to be one of us. And he's like, yeah, she has a point. It's probably true. <laughs> so he seems to know that. And doesn't really seem to care. So it makes you wonder if he really is trying to get her to join or if he's just getting, giving her these skills so that she can go be Arya Stark with some kick-ass skills. Yeah, maybe he agrees with Arya's list and is giving her the training she needs to take out those yeah, people. Carry it out, right. So he walks away, Arya follows. And this is when we get our little story about the first faceless men and how the the they began as slaves in the mines of Valyria and there's much more, not much more, but there's more cool information about this in the world of ice and fire, I think. And in some of the song of ice and fire books, a little bit more back in info, I think, but Arya's is like, Oh my God. Like she's intrigued. She's like, who was the first? And obviously he was no one. You know I'm just like, like, That's the obvious answer. Yeah. He says it so matter of factly, like obviously he was, he was no one. You know? And, uh, the, the many-faced God taught him how to shed his face and how to give the gift. And the man taught others in exchange for their service. Many served, many more gifts were given, and soon all the masters and overseers were gone, and the faceless men fled. And I was like, oh man, that's a pretty in- interesting story. It is. We need to see that on screen, like a mini-series or something about the birth of the faceless men. Definitely. I would That'd love that. That'd be kind of cool in old Valyria. Yeah. So Arya is asking, you know, what happened with them? And just some more cool history. We learned that the faceless men founded the free city of Bravos and built this building. And the. Yeah, uh, I have that in my notes that, too that they founded it. Yeah, they built Bravos. They freed themselves from the bondage of the slavery of the mines of Valyria and founded a free city, which is awesome. But any slave would ins- aspire to do is 
create a you know be part of a, a free civilization and they got to start their own so that's pretty pretty amazing definitely so we learned that the faces of the original faceless men decorate the walls in here and Arya's like wow and that's you know it's pretty cool and then he said he Jockin says to her and now a girl is one of them if a girl desires and i was like oh shit that's pretty badass he's offering her the chance to be a faceless man you know which is so sick and i love her response too super slick a girl has no desires and he sort of has like a that's right good answer kind of look and he goes to hand her a bottle and this is the first sign that this is not going to go as planned aria asks who and it seems like she's not supposed to be asking questions at all he sort of is like gives her a gesture like, uh-uh, you take the bottle. Yeah, we don't ask questions. Servants d- don't ask questions. Yeah, exactly. Like he says uh, late, later, yeah. So she takes the bottle and taking the bottle before knowing the name seems to sort of symbolize being dedicated to the kill regardless of who it mm-hmm. is and any other circumstances. Like you're just supposed to do it basically, which is, uh, as I mentioned before, the indiscriminate nature of the killing of the God of death is sort of contrary to the natural morals that have been instilled in Arya Stark through growing up as a Stark and having the influence of Ned and the other good people that she grew up with, Maester Lewin, Septa Mordain and whatnot. Old Nan. So, <laughs> yeah, so this is just a match that's not meant to be, basically. Yeah, Old Nan, exactly. Hodor. So... Yeah. Hodor, Hodor. So she takes the bottle and learns that she's going to have to go after this actress, Lady Crane, who's performing at a, in a show. And he says, a girl has been given a second chance. There will not be a third. One way or another, a face will be added to the hall. Dun, dun, dun. A man makes a threat. <laughs> And I'm thinking, hmm, does the waif's face count as one that could be added? I think it does. Because he's not saying like, yeah, he's it's not saying cryptic. like it has to be the face of the of the actress, you know. <laughs> it's it, you know, upon first listen, it's like, oh, it's either got to be the actress's face or it's going to be Arya's face. But as we come but to know, <laughs> maybe that's not the case. Yeah, maybe it's just anybody. Who cares? You know, <laughs> whatever. It doesn't really seem to matter. Maybe he was directly referencing the wave here because he doesn't really seem surprised that Arya comes out on top when she puts the wave's face on the wall. Like when he sees it and she goes, the girl is Arya Stark and I'm going home. He doesn't really seem surprised that she killed the wave. Yeah, he seems like he's been. Like maybe he's known that all, all along. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild. There's, uh, I like, the, I kind of like the theory that he's, that he's Rhaegar Targaryen. I like it too. The more <laughs> yeah, I think about cool. it. It's probably not the case, no, but it, it's poetically kind of neat. Although he does have that streak of white hair, silver hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so moving on to the, the play, it's like, um, it's sort of a satir, satirized version of reality, but it's also like, so there's like caricaturizations of the characters, but I think it's also influenced by Lannister propaganda. Oh, completely. Basically. So, so this is, yeah, it's like totally like the, uh, they say that history is written by the victors. And so this is definitely history as told by Cersei Lannister, basically 
the way that a lot of these characters are uh, portrayed. So all this stuff is happening up on stage. We get Robert being murdered by the boar, a big, great, hairy boar, <laughs> he says. And we see Joffrey and Cersei and Arya's enjoying it and laughing because they're making farting noises and all this funny stuff is happening up on stage. Just debauchery. Well, she gets to see Joffrey of, being slapped. The, the, yeah, yeah. And she hates Joffrey. I so almost made this it. one of my top five because Arya gets swept away right after her father dies. And she really has had no connection to what has gone on in Westeros since she left King's Landing from a political perspective, like she had no idea. I don't think she had any idea that Robert Baratheon died. I don't think she had any idea that they married Sansa to the imp. Yeah. It's quite, it's questionable how much of this she knows. I'm not, uh, does she, did she ever find out that she does know that Joffrey died? So I think she gets a kick out of that when that whole scene happens coming up next episode. Yeah. So this is like her, um, I want to say like five o'clock news broadcasts of what's been going on yeah, in our homeland. Yeah. And it's also, um, we'll get more into it in a little bit, but it's also like a test, you know, like this totally. is testing her. She's her, the whole process of what she's undergoing right now is, is stripping herself of her identity. That's, that's and basically basi- what Jock and Hagar is basically dangling, you know, her, life and her experiences in front of her like to trigger memories yeah exactly it's a hard test yeah, exactly yeah so we'll get more into that in a few in a couple minutes so she's sitting there watching this and joffrey's getting slapped around and the actress playing cersei is actually pretty great you can tell immediately that she's pretty talented as she's she's going through her monologue and uh talking about all this stuff and it's just very you know well well portrayed and then they mention Ned Stark and she's like, oh, and sort of catches her attention. And then Tyrion shows up and Ned shows up. And I thought this was kind of interesting because um, Tyrion and Ned never interacted in King's Landing. That's true. Yeah. By the time Tyrion got over there in season two, Ned was already dead. Dead. Yeah. So and this is Joffrey definitely running the, uh, propaganda. Yeah. yeah. Or it's just like, you know, they took interesting characters and had to limp, had to work Meld with the, the actors that they had. Yeah. Combined roles, sort of the way that, um, <laughs> sort of the way that Game of Thrones did with, with the Song of Ice and Fire books. That's true. Like sometimes yeah. like, like Euron Greyjoy has characteristics of both Victorian Greyjoy, another one of Balon Greyjoy's brothers and Euron Greyjoy from the books. So here it's like the play is <laughs> is condensing multiple storylines of Peter Baelish who betrayed Ned Stark and Tyrion together <laughs> for this for purposes of their show, which is kind of funny. So it's very true. They made Ned look all stupid and stupid. What's that? Yeah, he's got. He looks like the Secretary of Education in Idiocracy. I do love that they have the half up, half down pony look going though. Jon Snow starts wearing his hair like Ned's too. It's like oh yeah, half true. Pulled back. Yeah, 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 it's true. Oh, I get, I get what you're saying now. Gotcha. Yeah, so they they got Ned Ned Stark's hairstyle on him. Yeah. Um, I was thinking half up, half down, like one ponytail pointed upwards, one ponytail pointed oh, downwards. Oh no, half like, pony <laughs> is like half up, half down. Okay, I gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Tyrion is kind of making fun of Ned, saying they that. 
Robert brought him here because he's the, he's the smartest fellow in the land. And uh, I just thought that was kind of funny that he he's saying that he should be king of us all and that Tyrion should be his hand. So it was just kind of funny because we know that Tyrion ends up being named hand by Tywin who like temporarily gives him his own authority and like passes off his own status as hand to Tyrion. And Tyrion arrives at King's Landing as acting hand. So they're they're changing the way that happened with this play. It's also it's it's like imperfect because they're all the way over in Essos, <laughs> so they don't have like necessarily access to all the accurate information. Exactly. Which is kind of funny. It's so there's all like telephone. Yeah, there's so many la- layers of telephone. Like it's the propaganda by the victor. It's also uh getting stories being stories embellished or changed. Made, yeah, due to actors and then things being changed because of the the being so far away and not having ac- accurate information. Just kind of funny. So the play progresses and Robert dies and farts a whole lot, which is pretty <laughs> funny. There's that whole gut, that guy with me doing the sound effects and they're, Oh no, I'm yeah. about to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're really like hamming it up, which is so funny. Aria is uh, not laughing at, <laughs> at any of this stuff at this point. Like remember, remember how excited she was to meet King Robert in Episode One when he showed up at Winterfell. So she's not stoked about seeing him die again or anything. So next in the play, Cersei's asking Ned to remain as Joffrey's hand, but they're basically portraying Ned as being power hungry and wanting to steal the throne for himself. Ned did confess that he oh, wanted true. to take the Iron Throne for himself. That's not what his true agenda was. Right. It was, the confession was a lie. It was a false confession. So yeah, that true, that probably created this whole like public perception that he was power hungry. Yeah, good point. Good call. So I like how the, all these lines are blending together. Cersei's like, will you stay on as Joffrey's hand? And he's like, the Iron Throne's what I demand. <laughs> so, yeah. Just kind of cleverly written. It's very like Shakespearean in a way. Yeah, definitely. Like kind of like poetry. Like it's really bad poetry compared to <laughs> Shakespeare, but it has that kind of like feel to I it. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's 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 not terrible. There are some actually like some pretty good uh rhymes coming up like the line of succession, the proper progression, the lawful ascension, mm-hmm. which is pretty slick. Um but yeah, it's interesting yeah. to see like the Lannister spin and and the the public perception of this across the continents. Um, so it's pretty neat. So they go through this whole thing and then we cut to another scene where it's that, it's that tense standoff in the throne room when Joffrey's at the throne and Ned is trying to, he, he comes in with a piece of paper from Robert Brathian saying that he's named the, uh, the Lord protector of the realm. So he's trying to say that Joffrey's, you know, not the King at this point, that there's like an investigation and stuff that needs to go down that the rightful heir needs to be determined and that Ned would be Lord protector until the rightful heir comes of age. And in reality, remember Peter Baelish pulls the knife on him on and at his throat and uh, betrays him and gets yeah. the gold cloaks to turn on Ned instead of turning on Joffrey. And here it's Tyrion that does that and pulls the knife out. So another uh, case of them combining the characters, which is kind of cool. And then sure. it cuts to the execution scene and Sansa comes out on stage. And this is where 
Yeah, this is where it gets really yeah, sad for Arya. Suddenly, Arya is in the grips of a flashback. And you can see on her face that this is just like too much. She's reliving this this horrible thing. She's she's on the brink of losing her identity to the faceless men Borg. And then she's thrust into the midst of having her family's story told to her and triggering all of these memories. The most like probably significant point in her life. Yeah, exactly. The most traumatic experience she's ever dealt with. And I thought it was interesting too, because the way that this story is being told and the way that she's hearing it, it's almost mirroring the game of faces, the way that she's talking to the waif and she's like, I'm Arya Stark of Winterfell. I had four brothers. Whack. That's a lie. You know, and like some of the stories, right. But some of it are lies. Yeah. Good point. Good connection. Thanks. Yeah. That's the way that this story is unfolding now. So every time she's paying attention to the story and some of the details are true, some of the details are false. Love it. But then every false detail is triggering Arya to want to correct it. Right. Yep. And so subtly, psychologically, this is reaffirming her identity and her stark reality. Ugh. And it's it's triggering her to to put the pieces right and back in order and and solidify her story and her mind again. And it's preventing her from becoming no one by triggering these memories and making her think about what happened and what reality is. So I thought that was a just a kind of neat how this is all happening and it's testing her and preventing her from becoming no one by making her analyze the situation <laughs> essentially. Oh uh, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So cool. And so there are elements of reality in here, like Cersei publicly advocating to keep Ned alive saying that there's no point in killing him. And then Sansa begging for his life. And then Joffrey says, Oh, don't worry. You can all relax. Good people. Your father shall be spared the axe. And then right as he's about to say axe, the axe drops and the the guy pulls his head back and they throw out a dummy head. And just like in reality, Arya is witnessing Ned's execution from about the same distance in the audience. Mm. Her eyes are so expressive here too. Like the yeah. tears that well up in her eyes. Totally. And- yeah. She's being forced to relive the most traumatic moment in her life through the perverted lens of Cersei's filthy propaganda, you know, and like the twisted way that Ned was manipulated into making a false confession. And then the resulting public view of, of her family as an effect of that. So then Tyrion steps up and he's like, ah, ha ha. Like I'm going to be hand now a degree from my father, Tywin. And he also and hand for life. Yeah. Hand for life, bitches. <laughs> and then he says, uh, <laughs> he, he says that he's also been granted permission to take Sansa as his wife. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, kind of true. He was, he was, the decree's real marrying Sansa's real, but then it takes a transition to the bizarre where Tyrion says, and you'll learn, talking to Sansa, you'll learn that what I lack in height, I make up for in appetite. And he, boom, rips her blouse open, exposing her breasts. And this is another sick perversion of the truth. Yeah, because he was so gentle and kind to Sansa. And in fact, that's what's been occurring to her up in Winterfell, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and this is a literal perversion of reality as remember that time in King's Landing, Joffrey was making Marin Trant strip and beat Sansa and Tyrion prevented 
her from being exposed publicly. You know, yeah, so that's true. Him, him doing the exposing is the exact opposite of reality. Plus, um, his sexual appetite, which he he let her remain a virgin after their wedding night and didn't he never took advantage of her or anything like that. So it's just yeah. sick to see this insidious slander of Tyrion just totally it's flipping bad. reality out on its head. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. So that was interesting. Just another way that reality is different from from the fiction we're seeing in this play. So it, it cuts to backstage after this whole thing. And Clarenzo, one of these actors, the guy who was playing Joffrey. Oh, the wart, the dick wart, yeah, the wart dick guy. Yeah, he's got dick warts, apparently. <laughs> he's, I've got two fucking warts on my cock. Oh, they'll go away in like three to six years. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's so brutal. Oh, and that was man. a nasty looking cock, too. Sorry, but. <laughs> <laughs> I missed it. I must have been taking notes. I forgot they showed it. So that's pretty funny. Uh, I'll take your yeah. word for it. It's like all bent and crooked and warty. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, gross. Not like what you want to see. <laughs> it's so funny. They give you like nice bibs and then give you like crazy, like old man dicks. On a young teenage kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, like uh, you know, like the uh, the guy's dick at, at the shame march, shame walk. <laughs> yeah, you know, what the fuck? What's that all about? You get like a fake dick on Hodor. You get the shame walk old man dick. You think you that like was the, a fake dick on Hodor? No, it, it, I mean, you know, it's publicly known that, yeah, it is. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> it was a, yeah, a prosthetic, um, which is pretty funny. Don't you, you, I think you see Theon's dick too, but. Whatever. This is too much. You do dick talk. when he's fucking Roz. We, <laughs> we're always talking about boobs. Boobs. Um, yeah. So there's. We also see the uh, the the high Septon's dick, right? And he's getting dragged along nude in King's yeah, Landing. Yeah. Ew. That's old man dick too. And the uh, the wine merchant in the Dothraki wine merchant guy. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> and those two guys that are probably going to be killed for like doing gay stuff at the brothel when the sparrows oh, yeah. come in. We do there. see a lot of dick in this show. <laughs> yeah. They're, yeah. Dicks. Dongs. I think that's what he says. And uh, <laughs> at some point, plenty of boobs, plenty of dicks, everything you could possibly want, basically. Definitely. Except for those wart dicks. No one wants a wart dick. Yeah. <laughs> So then the actress who's playing Sansa, Bianca, is complaining about only having a couple lines and there are no small parts. Yeah. And then like, since she's complaining, they're like, well, you also, you also rang very false. And she's like, I rang very false. You know, like immediately we get a negative view of Bianca who we, uh, with her boobs hanging out yeah, still. Yeah. Right. 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 Although, yeah, the negative view of her is disguised by boobs <laughs> as we're lulled into thinking she's probably, you know, perfectly pleasant. Um, but Arya deduces that she ordered the assassination later, which we do find out is accurate. I believe interestingly. Yes. Cause Arya, again, the next time she goes to the place, she witnesses Bianca, over on the sidelines reciting Cersei's parts, ah, Lady right. Crane's parts. So she knows that she's envious of Lady Crane at that point. Yep, totally. And then the uh, the little guy comes in, the guy who's playing Tyrion, a dwarf maybe also. 
and he is super perverted. Bobano, Bobano, yeah, Bobano. Yeah, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but yeah, he's he's funny, man. He's a perverted little guy. He's like wah, 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 like all in that girl's boobs, and then talking to Lady <laughs> Crane also about like getting intimate and stuff. I love how she cheers cheers is the rum to to our children. Maybe oh yeah, yeah, our talent. future children. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and we learn a method to poison her immediately as her first line here basically is I'm a rum girl, Babono. You you need to know that if we're going to be intimate. <laughs> so Arya's like taking note like rum. This is a way to poison her. She likes her rum. We know it's reliable as a method of ingestion. Why is all the rum gone? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm like, are they serious about being intimate here or are they just joking around or what? I think they're just joking around because he they they have a toast and she says to our children and he goes may they have your talent and lady crane goes and your filthy mind <laughs> yeah true yeah, so i think they fun. were messing around yeah maybe although she, maybe she likes that filthy mind <laughs> maybe we can only wonder so that was just kind of funny and aria is kind of smiling at all this so she goes back to report but she saw on patrol who she will kill on patrol to Jockin. And remember that part with the, with, with gray worm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with Tyrion yeah. talking about what they talk about. And he talks about patrol. That is a report. <laughs> yeah. It's like talking about shrimp, fried shrimp, <laughs> baked shrimp. Yeah. 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 Coconut shrimp. Mm. <laughs> so Arya's is back there with Jockin. And uh, she's divulging her plan to poison the rum. So Lady, because Lady Crane is the only one who drinks it. And she wants to use one of those faces so bad. She's like, if a girl could use one of the faces from the hall. And Joggin's like, a girl is not ready. He's like, no, bitch. (laughs) See you angling for those faces. And then we have more cracks in the will of Arya. Because the first she, at first she wanted to know the name before she accepted the contract, basically. And took the, the vial. And so here she's showing connections to the actress. Emotional connections that she's formed. Which is the exact opposite if, that you want if you're supposed to be no one. She seems like a decent woman. Yeah, she's a good actress. <laughs> and yeah, she's like, See, she seems decent. And Jacken has a really chilling, chilling line here. Uh, Does death only come for the wicked and leave the decent behind? And th- this is creepy because it's like, yeah, death obviously comes for everybody. We know that. But in terms of it's not just death coming people. from. Yeah, they're killing people. Right. And so there there's no moral code. They're not necessarily killing people that deserve it or anything. And it reminded me of Dexter. You remember that show Dexter? I do. I actually never watched Dexter. Oh, man, it's so good. You got to watch it. You'll love it. So for anybody who hasn't seen it, the premise is this guy, Dexter, is a blood spatter analyst for Miami-Dade Metro Police in Florida, and he works for the cops doing crime scene investigation, but he also is a serial killer who kills killers. And in his youth, his father was a cop. His his dad basically knows that he's going to be a killer and, and gives him a code so he will kill killers instead of killing indiscriminately to make sure that people who deserve it are being killed and as he's sort of learning, as Dexter's father is learning this about him, he is sitting there talking with him. And it's right in the pilot episode, this, this scene. And he, he, he discovers that Dexter had 
killed some animals, which is, you know, typical for serial killers to do in their childhood. And he's like, Dexter, I found the bones basically. He's like, have you, have you ever thought about killing people? And Dexter's like, yeah, but no one in particular. Oh. Yeah. And, and he's like, well, why didn't you do it? And he's like, ah, I didn't want to upset you and mom basically. But the the important part is that he said he would, he had thought about killing, killing people, but no one in particular. And that's like almost worse than, than, than Having wanting to like kill somebody. Yeah. Like if somebody does something wrong to you and you want revenge and you want to kill them or something like that, it's, it can be sort of understandable, but if you just want to kill for no reason, nobody in particular, you just have that bloodlust. That's kind of like, creepy. Yeah. It's creepy. It's not a good thing, you know? So it's just, no. uh, this sort of just reminds me of that. Like these faceless men, like, are just like, well, does, does death only come for the wicked and leave the decent behind? They're like, we just fucking kill everybody. Basically you pay the price and doesn't, doesn't matter who it is. We'll kill them. And only death can pay for life. That was interesting too. Arya's like, who wants her dead? And he's like, that, that does not matter. The price was paid. And you know, my first question is how much, right? Yeah. Brown reference. How much with the, <laughs> the, with the cloak with the pot of gold on it? Yeah. Br- the bronze house sigil <laughs> with the, uh, the black water, black background with a crossed sword and bow. A pot of gold. Yeah. Bow with a flaming arrow and, uh, for that wildfire thing that, that he shot and a stack of stack of gold coins. How much? Yeah. How much? <laughs> so Ari, this is when Ari is like, yeah, it's the younger actress. She's jealous of Lady Crane because she's better and she wants to kill her. And Jockin knows that she's, you know, conflicted about all this. And he's like, listen, you must, you need to decide, like, if you're serving the many-faced god or not. And Arya plays along. She's like, a girl has decided, you know. <laughs> but I mean, obviously that's not true. And Jockin's like, you don't ask questions, basically. A servant so, does not ask yeah, questions. A servant does not ask questions. Just an interesting scene. I really like that whole play. I thought it was very well done. Me too. Um, yeah, really well written, really well choreographed. It's interesting to see like art within art. You know what I mean? So it kind of, in a way, it's very similar, not like what was going on in the play, but it's a similar concept to Phantom of the Opera, which is a play about an opera, oh, which is essentially yeah. a play. It's a play about a play. That's cool. So, yeah, I, I like I like stuff like that. Definitely. Dream within a dream. so that's it for my number two nice how about you my number two is sansa gives john a gift oh nice i loved this for so many reasons um we know that sansa and john did not have much if any of a relationship with each other growing up other than growing up together in a castle. Right. Um, they didn't really have much. She of, was just an ass basically. Like they didn't have much of, com- of a camaraderie. You could say no they had a relationship, I mean, they but they weren't around. close or anything. <laughs> yeah. They just, they had a kinship to each other, but I mean, it wasn't close. Yeah. And Sansa, I've always felt has been a very selfish character up sure. until recently. 
It's always been about her and what she wants. And I want to marry Joffrey and we're going to have beautiful children with blonde hair and he'll be my lion. And it's all about me. And when will I be queen? (laughs) It's all I've ever wanted just to be queen. And John has been broody, which we know. And I think Brienne actually says that he's broody. Yeah, he she totally does. Here in, in this, this episode. episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um you know, and so he's always watched from afar. He's always had a chip on his shoulder. He's always wanted to be a Stark. What an honor it would be to carry your house's sigil. I'm not a Stark. I'm, you know, a bastard and and here we have these two characters with completely different kind of like it's funny how they have different backgrounds, but they grew up in the same family and they have just two different perspectives growing up. Yeah, totally. And they they converge on this beautiful cloak that Sansa made as a replica of Ned's. Yeah. First, he starts by complimenting her own dress that she's wearing. Which yeah, she she's made like herself. I like the wolf bit there, you know, yeah. he's immediately zoning in on the wolf around her shoulders. Yeah. And I find it funny because Sansa has been talking a lot about how she's a Stark and she has the Stark name and everyone's saying that she's a Stark, but really she's a Bolton. Like, yeah, she's technically a Bolton right now. Right. It's Um, like how people kept referring to Joffrey as a Lannister, but he was a Baratheon technically. Yeah. And I know that they, you know, (laughs) the, women do to keep allegiance to their houses. Like Catelyn was very proud to be a Tully and a Stark. Yeah, that's true. So I think that plays a role a little bit. Family, duty, honor. Yeah, that plays a little bit of a role here. It's like technically Sansa's a Bolton, but she's still a Stark. And she goes, um, I made this for you. And she hands over this beautiful cloak with a direwolf sigil on the leather yes. breast uh, strap. And I don't know if, if John's ever been granted a piece of direwolf clothing to wear he's before. Not, I, to my knowledge, and I'm, you know, I'm not that far into the books. So from the show perspective, he has not been granted anything to wear Stark related. In fact, he's constantly reminded that he's not a Stark. Right. So this is Sansa. I really feel stepping into her role as Lady Stark. Absolutely. And it's a bringing big John into the fold yeah. of being a Stark like, too. You're in this family. You know, you're, you're a Stark. And not only that, basically. you're the last living son of our father. So you should be wearing the cloak that he wore, at least something really close to it. Right. I mean, they don't know that Bran is alive yet. But quite, but they, they, he may be. <laughs> he may or may not be. I mean, yeah. they know Rickon's alive, but probably unlikely for long because he's with Ramsey. Yeah, true, true, true. You oh, know, yeah, but true. I think she sees what everyone else has seen. He's in at John. least the eldest surviving son. Correct. For now, um, you know, but it's it's just an amazing moment between the two of them. Yeah. And he seems legitimately touched too. Like he has another brief smile (laughs) flickers across his face. (laughs) Another rare moment. Yeah. And I remember even early on in the books that Sansa did not like John around. 
it always bothered her that her dad's bastard was around. Yeah. Cause she, she's, she was always pretty close with Catelyn, you know, and, uh, that's, it probably just rubbed off of Catelyn basically. Sure. And I mean, she was all about perfection and the stories and the songs and there's really no songs or stories written about lords and their bastards. Yeah. It's kind of taboo. Kind of dishonorable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is really her accepting John as her brother and a, a symbolic moment between the two of them of giving and receiving from two characters that that's not really natural not typical for yeah yeah so, really good moment i love john he goes well thank you sansa and she goes you're welcome and she just like walks away <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then it cuts to brienne on horseback sitting next to Tormund, and he's <laughs> yes. she's sitting there looking forward and the whole time in and the he's background, like, he's just hey. looking at her, looking at her, looking at her. And then finally she turns and looks at him and the smile goes right up his face. And she just kind of like turns back towards the camera, like, oh, like really like grossed out. And like, there's a great, there's hilarious. a great meme of that. Um, oh, yeah. It says like when you're waiting for your friend to smell your fart or something. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> and the guy that's like sitting in between them looks like kind of like he's trying to like hold back laughter a little bit as well which is pretty funny yeah oh those moments are just so great yeah his face and and then her reaction is just priceless oh it's so great and um so john and ed kind of is this the last time they see each other Um, john and ed i'm not sure I feel is like it Ed is. around when they send them north of the wa- north of the uh, wall at East Watch. Does Ed come over there? Or yeah, I don't know. I don't, we'll have to pay attention. I don't think Ed is there. I think that I think this is the last time they see each other up to Thus date. Far. There's kind of an ominous feel between the two of them. Yeah, because he goes, "Don't knock it down while I'm gone." Oh yeah, don't knock it down while I'm gone. <laughs> well, and it's funny because John leaves the wall with Danny to go back to Winterfell, and that's yeah. when the wall gets knocked gets down knocked at Eastwatch. Knocked down at Eastwatch, true. Oh so, man, that's it's fucked up. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing, <laughs> foreshadow. So they climb on their horses, and they all kind of head out of town, and um. One of the brothers he goes, should we close the gate, Lord Commander? And Ed's like, I'm not the Lord Commander. <laughs> it looks around. Close the bloody gate. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I picked for our last words this episode. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a classic moment. Ed's it just kind of looking around like, oh, I guess, you know, whatever, whatever. Yeah, just close the gate. <laughs> you can call me the Lord Commander. I think he's like, yeah, I'll just roll with it. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, so it's a sh- it's a short um, number two, but I thought it was really compelling as the development unfolds between Sansa and John. Yeah, it's very important symbolically of their relationship, making amends, becoming a family, really coming together, which is what this, we need from the Starks and what we need to see going on up there. So that, yeah, it's really good, yes. great scene. And I I bet we both have the same number one. Yes, we probably do. I was tempted to pick a different number one, but I had a really hard time not picking this scene yeah, as my I number one. I was like, of, oh, I know she's going to pick it. I'll pick something else. But then I was like, no, let's just 
Let's go with reality and both have it as our number one. Because I still remember this. uh, So my number one is just the very end when Bran turns to Hodor, young Hodor, and his eyes turn white all the way to the end of the episode. Oh. Because I chose that specific part because I've had crazy reactions to major events in this show before. But this event to me really keyed me into what a genius George R. R. Martin is. Interesting. Cause when I first watched it, I hadn't read the books yet or even honestly had a desire to read them. Right. Um, so I didn't really know all the history and all the lore and all the speculation. And I really this just is watched new from the show too. Like this is not in the books. Yeah. So I just, the fact that Hodor stemmed from hold the door, I thought was just so clever and so amazing and so genius. And if I didn't love the show enough already, and loved it's it's kind of horrible to say I loved it even more after this scene, even <laughs> though it was terrible to watch. After they stripped the life from this young man and turned him into a a one word repeating lumbering beast for all the rest of eternity until he's shredded by a group of ice zombies. <laughs> but to make you feel for a show to make you feel a certain way. To yeah. have that oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. level totally. of emotion. And also that crazy light bulb that goes off and you're like, holy fuck. Right. I mean, and that's what we all like about this show. It's just amazing. The sadism, (laughs) like the torture, how it elicits (laughs) such strong feelings in us, you know? Yeah. So I'm thinking if this is both of our number ones, do you want to just talk about the whole like cut? Starting from the, the next scene after we left off with uh Bran. Okay, cool. Let's start there. So, it, we we're back in the great Werewood Tree Cave thing and Bran and the Three-Eyed Raven are in a vision and Mira and Hodor are getting ready to get on the move and get out of there <laughs> since the the Night King is going to be coming. And they're talking about having food and everything like that, like what they're going to This is when eat. you know something's going to go wrong cuz they're thinking about the future and what they're yep. going to have for breakfast. Yeah, yeah, you can't speculate about happy future stuff. Otherwise, you know, something fucked is going to happen. And all of a sudden, Mira's breath is icy, misty, and she's like, oh shit. And she makes the connection that when the White Walkers get close, the, it gets really cold really fast. So she runs to the front of the cave where Leaf and the other children of the forest are gathered outside looking across this vast area and she runs out and looks and the army of the dead is in Uh, formation outside just stretched out as far as the eye can see basically and the night king is standing in the front with a, a couple of other white walkers and she comes out and he sort of sees her come out takes a couple steps forward leans down and touches the ground and like an Ugh. earthquake sort of emanates forth up to the area where, where they are towards the mouth of the cave. And it's like at that moment, he's like testing the magic or something like that. I'm not sure what he's doing exactly. Making sure the barrier is broken, the protective ward that's been keeping them out for all this time or something. 
And so Mira's like, fuck. And then he reaches back and pulls out his sword, that funky ass blade that he's got. That thing is crazy, man, right? Like a curved ice blade. It's amazing. Yeah, it's so cool. This whole scene. So I'm a video gamer. I like to play video games with my husband. Yeah, Gliven. <laughs> I like to play MMOs with him and I've played nice. World of Warcraft and Elder Scrolls Online and Final Fantasy 14. And this whole scene reminds me of like a boss fight in one of the MMOs. Oh, <laughs> like, that's sick. You have like ice balls like exploding. Yeah, magic at the balls people. that they're throwing. You have like Huge the Night explosions. King walking through like a protective barrier and like whisking fire away. You have like melee battles going on. You have the children of the forest running around using magic spells. I mean, it's straight up like out of a video game. Mm, people in my opinion. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I love it. So cool. So he, he pulls the blade out and starts walking forward, followed by all the other white walkers and the army of whites. And Mira runs back inside and she starts trying to wake up Bran and the children of the forest are throwing these magic uh, bomb things, <laughs> which are making these huge explosions and just blowing these whites to shit, basically. Too bad they didn't hit the fucking Night King. Damn, I mean, it seems like right. he would have been obliterated like all these other guys. So they're getting closer and closer and the children of the forest start to retreat and run back inside. And as he approaches this barrier of fire that's been built and that the, the children have set ablaze, the flames just recede as, and make mm. a path for him to walk through with the white walkers. And we see this at hard home too, that they can yeah. just walk through flames. Yeah. The flames dissipate as they approach. And, um, they, so they start walking up, but the whites are held back by the flame barrier and they, they pour all around the sides and start climbing up the mountain and burrowing, digging in through the top. So creepy. Single track mine. Destruction yeah. army. Totally. So the, the night King walks, strolls right through and some of the white walkers go in first into the cave and one of them goes in there and sees the three-eyed raven and Mira and Mira is, is watching as one of the children of the forest tries to fight him and gets killed by that ice blade thing. And Mira yes. happens to pick up a dragon glass spearhead spear basically and tosses it at the, the white Walker and boom, he shatters into ice fragments. So before we go too far, one of our listeners several episodes ago wrote in about this particular scene with Mira. Right. When she runs back into the cave, she grabs that sword. Yeah. And so I saw her do that, but I didn't see her parry a white Walker's weapon with it. So I was curious if you saw that. Cause I right. remember that I, being a part of his feedback. I wasn't sure either. I, I don't think I saw her fight a white walker with it either, but I did see her pick up a sword. I'm not sure whose sword it was or anything. It more was just about like that. laying up against the wall, which is kind of random and well-placed. I know she, she kills the white walker with the dragon glass spear that Sam gave her, but I didn't see her do any combat with the sword that she picked up. Yeah. Same here. Okay. Okay. So I, I wasn't missing something. Right. Yeah. That's that, I think I'm, yeah, I'm having the same 
recollection as well. So Bran is just not waking up. And Hodor is freaking out. As this is happening, there's a moment where it cuts to Hodor just as all this is going down. And he's, yeah, he's starting to panic, rocking back and forth. Hodor, Hodor. And my heart sinks as, Mm. as I realize what's about to happen again. And Bran is trapped in the vision and Mira is screaming at Hodor to pick up Bran and it's, it's not working. And she starts screaming at Bran, you know, to wake up, wake up. And we have to go. Yeah. It cuts into the vision and he's watching Ned speaking with Rickard Stark about leaving to go live at the Vale and to be John Aaron's ward. It's just a cool little conversation between the two of them. You can sort of tell that this is a Stark and you can, it makes sense in context uh, in Ned's character. He's telling him to remember that he's a Stark and behave with dignity and try to stay out of fights. And young Ned's like, yes, father. But he, he says, but if you have to fight, win it, which I liked because like it, it that sort of foreshadows Robert's rebellion where he has to fight to save Liana and they fucking win that war. You know what I mean? Yes, they do. Yeah, big time. So that's a really cool line. Stay out of fights if you can, but if you have to fight, do what you got to do to win. Um, so that's the right attitude. I loved that. Yeah. It cuts back out to Mira and she's trying to get him to wake up and whites are finishing digging through the ceiling at this point and they're starting to pop out and fall down on her. And uh, she is using the sword to attack the whites, but not any of the white walkers. So she's cutting down these whites as they're falling through and another one comes down and summer tackles it. And I'm like, yeah, summer for the win. And then oh, I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> I know. I forgot that this is where, for some reason I forgot this is where summer dies. And when he appeared, I was like, no, I yeah. can't watch this. I know oh, this so episode sad. is so brutal. They're all throughout this episode. There's like, like <sighs> such sad moments. <laughs> this whole episode, man. Yeah. So she drops the blade and runs back over to Bran and she's like, Bran, we need Hodor like yelling at him. And you can hear it starting to like echo into the vision that he's having like Hodor, yeah. Hodor, Hodor. She's like, we need Hodor. And I'm like, well, he's about to make Hodor. So <laughs> good timing for that. Just give her a cu- give him a couple more minutes, Mira. <laughs> yeah. And so he's he's like sort of looking at Willis in the in the vision. And she's like, warg into Hodor. We're all going to die, Bran. And the three eyed raven is like, listen to your friend, Brandon. Mm. And he starts thinking and then it cuts to Hodor back in the Werewood cave and Hodor's eyes turn white. So Bran has warged into Hodor from within this vision yeah, back to our reality, like where he, his body is, which is crazy. So that's intensely crazy. Yeah. So he's Hodor's eyes turn white and he goes over and starts fighting and picking up Bran to get him out of there. And they start running out. And he's dragging Bran along and Mira's got the sword uh, and Summer is guarding the way and blocking with them and they're retreating and Summer stops and starts growling at all these whites that are coming in and Mira is trying to get Summer to come on and she's yelling, but Summer is in protection mode at this point and sadly sacrifices his life by trying Mm. to fend off the whites for as long as he can. He runs right into the middle and gets all stabbed. Well, if it wasn't for summer and leaf, I don't think they would have gotten out and, and and Hodor. Hodor. Yeah. Each of them. I don't think they would have gotten, they they gave enough space in between 
to give just enough time yeah, for just enough Mira time and Bran to escape. To get out to Benjen, which we see next episode. Mm-hmm. But the uh, it's so crazy. So Summer just runs up and is killed so quickly. And then it's just boom, onto the next thing. And I'm like, holy shit. They just like flew right past the death of a direwolf like it was nothing. You know, whereas That's usually... That's how intense the scene is. Yeah. And I'm like, just given how casually, like almost casually treated that direwolf death was... That means there has to be something else really big coming up if they're going to gloss over something major like that. You yeah. Know? So I'm like, fuck, like something not good is is coming. Something intense. I feel like they kind of did that too with Shaggy Dog. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, we just see like his head. I mean, we, it's like... We, 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 in reality, we can blame the CGI budget. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. We can blame the CGI budget, but yeah. I just wish... I don't know. Yeah, like I felt that was glossed over as well. Maybe maybe not showing it or having like any crazy expensive scenes around it, but like we just get his head flopped on a table and that's it. That's yeah. it. That's the closure we get for Shaggy Dog. Yep, basically. It's sad. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. So all the whites are just enclosing on these guys at this point. And um they get out of the chamber and then the night King comes walking down the hallway mm. into the room with that amazing weapon. Yeah. With that sick blade and the, the three eyed Raven is sitting there defenseless and it cuts to the vision and the three eyed Raven tells Bran, the time has come. Leave me like you, you just go. And uh, he knows he's going to die because he's, he knows the night King is in the room He's traveled through time and everything. He has to know. He has has to have seen his own death. Right. And if this is, if, if he is Bran, then he has the memory of being Bran and this being the last moment that he would see himself in the future. So he knows that he's, he dies after this, right? If he has the memories of Bran, if this is Bran. Uh, So Bran is like, like, what, what are you talking about? And the night King hits him with that sword and he just dissolves into like a black mist I love the way he dissolves. Yeah, in the vision, it's so cool and just—it's like liquid smoke. Yeah, it's really, really awesome. And Bran is like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> Basically, like, it's "Oh, so sad." Fuck. He like, he, he, yeah. The three-eyed raven actually looks a little fearful in this moment. Oh yeah, yeah, he totally a, does. Which he, is surprising if he's been around for a thousand years. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe that'd make you even more scared to die because you're like, maybe. fuck, it's finally happening and you're just like, the anxiety's been building for that <laughs> that whole thousand years. <laughs> you know? Who knows? Yeah. So I'm like, shit, the three-eyed raven's dead? That's gotta be the big event of this episode, right? The big thing that they were hinting is coming up by glossing over nope. the, uh, <laughs> you know, the death of summer. <laughs> nope. Was I wrong again? So they're running down the hallway and there's whites crawling all over the ceiling, just everywhere. And it's fucking crazy. The graphics, just all these guys just scrambling all over. So oh, cool. It's so creepy. Just pouring in from all angles. I remember watching this for the first time, just being like, it's like a horror movie. Yeah. And they're like crawling on the ceiling. And Leaf stops running and Hodor and Mira are still running and they're like, you know, Mira's like, what are you doing? Like, what the fuck? And Leaf is just like, get out of here. And it cuts down to her hand and she, we see she's holding one of those bombs and she primes it to, to blow and she's just surrounded by all the whites and they just start stabbing and stabbing the shit out of her. I wonder why she just didn't throw it at them. Like, why yeah, did she sacrifice herself? Good question. 
Maybe she. I always wondered that. Maybe she thought that it would blow up too soon, like too close to the perimeter of the whites, and maybe she thought that if she was surrounded by them, and I think maybe that because they stopped to stab her and kill her, and she's sitting there. Yeah, let as many gather around as possible, then boom, blow them all up when a crowd forms. Yeah, they're all like attacking her, and she's sitting there silently getting stabbed. Yeah. And she just closes her eyes for that moment of peace before they explode. Yep. And then when she dies, her like life force d- stops like controlling the bomb and it boom blows up. That's what it looked like to me. It was like, yeah. So she holds it on until a big crowd has formed around her basically. <laughs> and then yeah. kind of takes out as many as possible. Mm. So I'm like, damn, that's got to be the big thing, right? <laughs> nope. No. <laughs> Still no. So they get to the door. And Hodor's trying to smash through the door. Smash, smash, smash. And Mira's looking back and forth, back and forth as the whites are getting closer and closer. Like, hurry up, hurry up. Like ants just swarming all around every surface of this cave, crawling over every surface. Like um, like the exorcist child or the grudge or something, you know, times a thousand. Yeah. And just all over the place, you know. And... Uh, She's like, Hodor, you got to open the door, like get the door. <laughs> and bam, he finally opens it and they pull through and, and drag Bran out. And he goes back to hold it closed. And Mira is yelling, hold the door. As she's trying to work with Bran, drag Bran away. And Hodor is holding the door and it cuts back into the vision in Winterfell of the past. Mm-hmm. And this is the moment. You want to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, this is the moment that, like, it just, it's so amazing, the the thought process of this story arc and the storyline. And um, we hear in voiceover Mira saying, hold the door, hold the door. Hold the door, echoing like, through space and time. Bran is looking at Willis and just has this look of sadness wash over his face. And like, it's almost I'm, like sadness and despair and like I, I'm in helplessness, I guess is a good word for it. Yeah, he's looking at young Hodor and he's thinking about how old Hodor is probably about to die like any second. Yeah. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, young Hodor, Willis, his eyes turn white. He turns and sees Bran first, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, First, they so look it, at each other. It's like the Night King. All of a sudden, he, Willis turns. I think maybe and what locks happened is Bran. because Bran warged into older Hodor in the vision. When Willis looked into Bran's eyes, he immediately went into a warg state. Mm, it like transferred. And I think he like had a seizure because two Hodors can't be warged into at once. Yeah. And he, <laughs> I have it, no like, idea. <laughs> it, he starts saying, hold the door. So it's like, he's mm-hmm. connected with the future Hodor. He's connected there. to what's going on right then and there. Right. Yeah. He's like experiencing the, what, ho- what older Hodor is experiencing. And it's like, he becomes trapped in that moment forever of holding the door, holding the door. He's just obsessively holding the door. And then Nan runs over and she's like, Willis, what's the matter? And yeah. He's hold the door, hold the door. This young actor did an amazing job. Phenomenal. I like even just saying that I literally just got goosebumps like all over my arms. Yeah. Um, watching him convulse on the ground, the way he His arms and everything, what he was doing. Um, it was very realistic. 
Yeah, I the way so he too. was convulsing and just screaming over and over and over again, hold the door, hold the door. And, and starts losing syllables. I love how we're cutting kind of in between the vision of young Hodor seizing and cutting back over to older Hodor holding the door. Yeah. Kind of similar to how we get that baby John to modern John cut or Aegon. It's there's just so much to process. I remember watching this and I like kind of knew that Hodor was going to die, but I was really confused why we were going to watch like him have seizures and stuff. Like I had no clue that all of a sudden his disconnection, his, you know, ramblings of hold the door, hold the door as whites begin to like break through the door and grab, grab on his skin and peel like pieces of his flesh away. And he just looks so determined. He's so determined because he loves Bran so much. And yeah. he, I'm sure he loves Mira too. And I think Hodor has known for his entire life um, from the point of where we're at in the vision that this is his purpose. Yeah. This is what it's all leading up to. It's meant to save Bran and he has a, a duty. He has this like insane vision that is imparted to him through Bran here where he sees the future and sees this pivotal moment in history that he's playing a part in. And then he can't even tell anybody what happened because his brain is damaged in the process and all he can say is Hodor. So it's impossible yeah. for him to express what he saw and the implications yeah. and what he knows. He's just stuck living his life as Hodor knowing what's going to happen, but un being unable to explain no it one or even do anything calls about Willis it anymore. They just call him Hodor because that's all he says. Yeah. So then we, we cut back, um, you know, from older Hodor, like crying out and kind of, you know, crying out in pain and determination to keep the door closed. We cut back to the vision of young Hodor and it just uh, locks it, on him. Oh my God. We have like this view of him, like straight down. We're looking at him as if we're like bent over, like looking at him yep. and he keeps saying, hold the door. And the more he says it, it kind of starts morphing into hold door, hold door. And then he says that a few times and it gets even more slurred. And there, there's a couple moments where it starts to come back a little bit where it's like, hold door. And then it's like, hold the door. So it's like, it's not even like a fully like uh, like a like it's not following a consistent exactly. pattern of 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 morphing it's it's like hodor as hodor dies in the future this morph is happening but it's like hodor is trying to cling on to life and it's like he's having these these small resurgences where he's still like bouncing back just a little bit before he finally dies and it fully transforms into just hodor ugh this whole like last hodor like the few hodors he says it like six times hodor like hodor. And every, and he's calm I was, by the end of it yeah because it's hodor like, is hodor. dead at that point because he's not witnessing his death anymore yeah so is it like is it the death of hodor that breaks willis and makes him hodor or is it just the mind meld overpowering him because it seems like you know, when he's saying Hodor and it, at that point, that's when Hodor is dead. Like Hodor dies. And at that point, it's just fully Hodor. I think he witnessed his own death. I think what happened is, is Bran works into, is into main Hodor. Mm -hmm. 
And when Willis looks at Bran and the vision, it he connects gets all tapped, three of them. He gets tapped into. So I think he's watching his own death through Bran's vision, right? Of Hodor, like yeah, he's experiencing it. But is it is it that that fries his brain, or is it Hodor's death and being connected to Hodor as Hodor dies? That fries his brain. I think it might be a combination of both because he's Probably. clearly having a seizure and he's clearly like slurring his words. I think even before Hodor dies. Yeah. Yeah. But I think Hodor's death solidifies him not being able to come back from saying Hodor. Oh, like I think so if maybe Hodor would have stayed alive, maybe Willis would have reemerged after his seizure. Maybe. But because Hodor died. Oh, fuck. Couldn't even imagine. Yeah, this is her last, like her only living progeny, I think, is her son or grandson, Willis. Yeah. No wonder she was so protect, protective of him, not letting him fight and stuff. Yeah, he's just a stable boy. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it was a sad number one for me to pick, but it was also one of those scenes in the show that I was just like, this show is just pure genius. Yeah, definitely. Like no one saw that coming. Nobody. It's almost like it's like when the show started off, it was purely like a medieval drama kind of with very little mystical element stuff in it. Yeah. A little, very little um, bits of magic. And then by the end of season one with the birth of the dragons and season two with the wildfire and things like that, it sort of sort of became more of a fantasy show, the shadow demon, et cetera. And then as things are going, now we like as as Bran got to the cave, the tree in season four, at the in the finale, um, you know the throwing of the magic fireballs and stuff by Leaf. Yeah, at that we're point. in the heart of it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like super magical and mystical and fantasy. And then at this point, it sort of even expands beyond fan, beyond fantasy and introduces certain elements of science fiction. Kind of here as we get into time travel, um, as well. So it's just, it's exploring all kinds of genres, sort of. Yeah, for sure. It's pretty wild. Pretty epic. Yeah, so I think that's kind of everything I have for this scene. Yeah, and so, yeah, we we find out that it's Hodor. That's the big thing that <laughs> that they were leading up to, brushing over the deaths of Summer and the Three-Eyed Raven and Leaf, leading up to this huge one, which is the center of the of attention for the end of the episode. It's crazy. So Uh, intense. Hodor, we will miss you because you were amazing. Yeah, totally. I love that the guy that plays Hodor is like a DJ (laughs) in real life. (laughs) Christian Nairn. There's a podcast called Game of Owns and they hosted a party in New York a few years ago called uh, Night of Ice and Fire, I think it was. And they had Christian Nairn who played Hodor DJing at the party. That's so badass. Oh my God. I, I just stumbled upon it and I, I didn't, it was by the time I got there, the party was over, unfortunately, but I ended up getting like a, a like a poster of the, like an event poster or something like that. So that was kind of oh, cool. Oh, nice. I have it, but that's so badass. So think about this. Hodor is descendant from Sir Duncan the Tall. We're assuming. So you guys are related. Yes. Essentially. But he's, he's like an amazing physical specimen. Like if he hadn't been damaged mentally, he would have been an amazing fighter, right? Mm-hmm. As we know, they were t- talking about that a couple episodes ago, like with, with at young Ned. Keep. Um, they're Even also, at yeah, Keep, they were Keep like, if, if I was as big as you, I'd be king of the fucking world. Right. Yeah, totally. 
So there's all this talk about how he would be a great fighter and everything. And when Bran wargs into him and does fight with him, he's a total beast. So <laughs> he gets killed here up at the door within proximity of the Night King. And the Night King mm-hmm. is very interested in increasing his army size and good getting good fighters. He's got giants on his, in the undead army. He's got everything. So my bet is that we didn't see Hodor really get ripped to shreds because the Night King would want Hodor in his army. I think we're going to see zombie Hodor this season. You think is what so? I'm getting at. Yeah. I really think that we are definitely going to see zombie Hodor this season. Oh my God. Because he, it makes too much sense. I don't know how I can process that. Do you think he'll say Hodor? <laughs> <laughs> well, think about it. Like the Night King is right there. If if this guy if was killed near me and I was the Night King, I'd be like, oh, there's my new blood rider. You know, <laughs> like whew, you're resurrected and you're now protecting me. You know what I mean? So it wouldn't surprise me if if Hodor shows up with the the undead army to attack Winterfell as part of the Night King's personal honor guard, for instance. And imagine this, like remember how at hard home Carsey sees the little kids and like stops dead in her tracks and can't fight because yeah. she's so traumatized. Arya grew up with Hodor. You know, all these people at Winterfell grew up with Hodor. Hodor could lumber in and go to attack Arya or something, this tough ass girl, but she could be like, Oh my God, it's Hodor and freeze or something. And he could whack, knock her unconscious. Oh, oh fuck. You know, <laughs> or maybe brand would have to warg into Hodor warg into undead Hodor to prevent him from slaughtering people at, at Winterfell. And he could could be like a battle between Bran and the night King inside the mind of Hodor. (laughs) That's how the show's going to end. Trying to fight for autonomy and that, yeah, that, that whole like warging into undead Hodor thing. Cause he's warged into Hodor with like warging into humans. No one's ever done it next. He can warg into undead Hodor. No one's ever done that. So that would be even next step for Bran. And then that could be foreshadowing him warging into an undead dragon. (laughs) For sure. That's true. It's like a stepping stone. Yeah. Which I imagine would have to be Drogon. Other like, cause you know, Drogon. Well, he might be able to warg into Viserion if he can warg into dead Hodor. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he could, but I'm assuming that, you know, Viserion's going to be killed or something like that. And then it's going to come down to Bran having to try to work war- into Drogon or something crazy like that. Like Drogon's going to die and be the ultimate threat. <gasps> and then Bran's going to have to die. I don't want Drogon to die. I know. Neither do I. But you know, I don't want gonna, any of them to die. They're going to destroy honest. us. So, yeah. There, what like, was that poll I posted earlier where it said that Tormund was number one to come back? predicted to turn out to come out as a a, a a white in the army that's funny to be resurrected and number two was dolorous ed oh how weird <laughs> i would say hodor yeah hodor i think we're gonna get undead hodor what do you think i have to agree i have to agree right it just makes too much sense i i kind of hope we don't see undead hodor but i also kind of want to because it would be kind of cool yeah, I mean, he was right there. The Night King was right there. I would want Hodor on my, well, on my army. No one burned his body, so he's a part. Yeah. He's a part of the army, yeah, whether we like it or not, whether we see him or not. He's a part of the army. Yeah, totally. And then there's also the possibility that the Night King was like, "Don't kill that one. I want to touch him and turn him into a White Walker." Because we didn't see Hodor actually die. 
And if all those whites stopped to try to corral Hodor and restrain him until the Night King got there to touch him, it might have stopped the flow of whites just long enough for Bran and Mira to reach Benjen. So Hodor could be a white walker at this point, for all we know. They don't talk anyway. Oh, man, that'd be so cool. Yeah. Anything else you want to add about Hodor or the time loop stuff or anything like that? No, I just am going to miss him. Yeah, same here. R.I.P. Hodor. R.I.P. You are always a joy. Definitely. So let's move on to notes. Okay. What do you got first? Um, my first note is how the Night King was born. Nice. So I have a question for you. That tree that the children of the forest are running around with the spiral, is that the tree that they're at I don't right now. think so. It, it's possible, but I don't, I didn't get a vibe of that. Um, that sort it was of hill that tell. they seem to be under. Well, I felt maybe that hill might've been created because the tree is so old and there were so many roots that it kind of created like, like built a you know, lifted itself like, up, kind like of. lifted itself because underneath, um, in the cave, it's, pretty spacious in there. And I think the roots have caused that over thousands of years. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm really not sure. Um, I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. It seems like a pivotal location. So yeah, it, it, I, I had a hard time telling because the tree was significantly smaller with the children of the forest around it. But if it was, if it was the same one though, the night King probably would have been there a lot quicker. True. Although he did get there pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. It's hard to, I mean, depending on where he was, we have no idea where the Night King was. Mm -hmm. Or how long Bran and the Three-Eyed Raven went back into that vision for. Yeah. So I love, this is another one that I wanted to put in my top five. I had a really difficult time with top five this week. (laughs) Um, I went back and forth putting this scene into my top five because of how important and significant this scene is from a historical perspective that right yeah super important the children of the forest created the white walkers to protect themselves from men and now the children of the forest are helping protect men from what they created right so people are often speculating as to the nature of the white walkers and their psychology and their motivation and here it seems like they're basically just a defense system created um, with the singular purpose of defeating humans, basically, whether or not they have like their own um, autonomy or emotional thought processes is yet to be determined, essentially. I think the White Walkers and the Night King and his like lieutenants, I guess I'll call them. I think they have some sort of cognitive ability. Right. I think the physical army that they have have no type Just of husks powered by necromancy and the will of the, uh, yeah. the white walkers. Yeah, I, I agree. They're zombies. I, I think they have no tactical or brain power whatsoever. Um, I think they're one track mind. I think we see, get a huge glimpse of that in hard home when they like fling yep. themselves off yeah, that, that cliff mountain. That was so cool. And just get like right back up with no regard for what just happened. I mean, they just like jumped off a 500 foot cliff. Epic. They fall, they like crack all into pieces. They clip back together and <laughs> crack all into pieces. 
and then they start running again. So, but I think the Night King and I think his lieutenants have some type of cognitive intelligence, basically just because we see them doing this, the ceremonies with the baby, the crafter's baby. Right. Yeah. They have like a rituals and like a process that they seem and to have also, created on their own. I don't know own. if you've noticed this too, is in season one, when we first see the lieutenants and the night king they're very like naked yeah they're very stark starkly dressed Mm -hmm. and now they're like in like they're in some armor and some leather and then come season seven they're like actually like geared out like they actually have you know like armor on so yeah it's pretty interesting I think they have an agenda. I think they have cognitive abilities. That's another thing that's pretty different from the books. Right off the bat in the prologue, the first chapter of the first book, you get to see some of the White Walkers um, fighting Waymar Royce. Sir Waymar Royce, he's just a new ranger up at the Night's Watch. And um, what they're wearing, the White Walkers, is described as being like translucent armor. Oh, crazy. Yeah. I remember that. Like near, it makes them like near invisible kind of, it sounds like sort of like cloaking. Sure. And their blades are like shivering through the air. These ice blades, like super razor thin mm-hmm. ice blades. <laughs> and they make like, like their, their voices sound like crackling ice. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Um, that's in the first book, right? Yeah, First chapter like, of the first book. Yeah, I was going to say that's like right up front. That's yeah. right. And then you don't see him again for like years. (laughs) Oh man. I love that chapter. The chapter is so good. I read the first chapter of the book. I was pregnant with Justin. Nice. So it's been that long since I've read the first book. So good. Two and a half years, Duncan. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. He just turned two and a half. He just turned two and a half. (laughs) (laughs) It's classic. Yeah. Um, so I have to give props to the makeup artists that do the children of the forest. Oh, we yeah. get to, it's, it's not just face makeup, it's body makeup. Their yeah, legs the are made up. Their arms are made up. The, um, the actress that plays leaf is this really beautiful Asian woman. Nice. And so I just love her features, how they placated to making her look like a, a child of the forest. Yeah. The children Um, of the forest in the books are a little different too. They're like more like woodland creaturey looking like they like almost like have leaves or something. You know what I mean? Oh, really? Yeah. They're like like spotted like, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, it's pretty interesting. They're just described a little differently. Um, Hmm. You have to read the books to find out people. Yeah. So um, we see that they're kind of whispering. We get that shot of the, the spiral into the weirwood tree and we see the night king a human first he's just a human yeah yeah we don't know he's the night king yet brand's like what the fuck is going on here um and then leaf slowly drives a shard of dragon glass oh so brutal at first i thought it was a piece of the weirwood tree Mm. but then i like the more i watched it and then I started like learning more. I actually like paid attention and it, to me, it looks like a piece of dragon glass. Yeah, definitely. That's what, um, Benjen says too, when John is reunited with him and he's, he says that oh, they yeah. use uh, dragon glass to 
create oh, the White right. Walkers and to destroy and to prevent them from being, uh, yeah, from being turned into White Walkers. Oh you, yes, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, Benjamin tells that to to Bran, I believe. It's so funny how many times I've watched the series and still how much I forget. Like, right, right, <laughs> yeah, totally. That's what I think is why I've been able to watch it so many times. Is I pick There's up so on much things. going on, yeah. Yeah, I pick up on things I've never picked up on before, and I remember things that I totally forgot about every time I watch yep, it. Yep, definitely. Yeah, me so too. I, like where that whole riding the dragon conversation last episode, I totally forgot yeah, that that existed. Yeah. It's so crazy. It's so amazing. Yeah. So yeah, his eyes turn blue and he transforms, and we're like, "Oh shit, what happened here?" It's just insane. It's like the exact way the uh, baby's eyes turned blue too. They, yeah, they both had blue eyes to begin with, which I moment. found interesting. Oh really? Both of these eyes. and this guy. And this guy had blue eyes. And I wonder if that has any, like, if they need, like, specific blood types or, like, specific genetics to be able to turn somebody into a white walker. I don't know. I'd be curious, but it, interesting choice to have just blue-eyed people. Right. Um, their pupils turn blue first, and then it goes over the cornea, which like is already out. blue. The, oh, but the, it's already the iris, blue. you mean? Or yeah, the iris, and then it spreads out over like the blue part of the eye, which is already blue, and then the whites of the eye turn blue. Oh, so creepy. Yeah, so it's like you don't really see it at first, but you see like a shift in their eye color, but it's still blue, and then all of a sudden, they're that glassy, no iris looking. Oh, it's gnarly. Um, so... Bran confronts her. He was like, you made these White Walkers. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, and she goes, you? we were at war. We were being killed. Like, our trees were being cut down. We needed to defend ourselves. Yeah. And Bran goes, from whom? And she goes, from you. From men. Dun, dun, dun. And I love the way she says men. Oh, interesting. I'll have to go back and listen. I don't remember exactly. It's like she's breathy with it. Like. From men. It kind of catches in her throat from men. Like she doesn't want to admit that. Interesting. But because yeah, I think they're like listen. not at war anymore, and they're starting like they're the catalyst of starting the next great war. Mm -hmm. I guess. Like she's not proud of it. Right. Right. The vibe <laughs> I got. That's funny. <laughs> but this is like thousands and thousands of years ago. You know, right, so like it's 8, a lot has ago. changed since then. So. And clearly, Leaf is extremely old. Super old. She's like yeah. a Kinvara old. <laughs> mm, probably. They probably knew each other back then. Probably. Maybe for all we know, Kinvara is a children of the forest. You know, like we don't know she's a human. That glamour, she could be anything under that. <laughs> oh my God. What if she was Leaf? She's a gray alien. <laughs> yeah. Finkel yeah. is Einhorn. I do love, and I love how all of the children of the forest look so different from each other. And... I just love the makeup. I read an article a long time ago about their makeup and seriously, the prosthetics like took like 12 hours. Oh man. They, they would start filming in the morning and they would start at like eight o'clock at night getting their makeup on. Damn, that's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. All of the prosthetics and the um, airbrushing and the makeup and the hair and everything. It was just quite a production to get those like six characters. Wow. 
Yeah, really cool makeup. I mean, they're, I mean, they're significant, but they're not like significant <laughs> yeah, characters. Yeah. Not like main characters or anything like that. Yeah. Lore-wise, very significant. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty so wild. I'm glad that for the lore-wise that they took the time and energy and detail because yeah. someone that wasn't into the lore when they first watched the show, I noticed them right away. Although some people that were in like are into the lore um we're mad that they changed it a bit from the books, but you know, whatever. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> There's always that person. Yeah, totally. Anything else you want to add about that? Or shall we move on to the next Let's scene? Let's go back to Pike. Perhaps. Yar. Yeah. Okay. Yara kicking some ass. Why don't you take this? Sure. So we're gathered for the King's moot and Aaron is announcing what's going on and asking what Ironborn wants to make a claim to the salt throne. So Yara steps up and she's like saying who she is, daughter of the of the old king, Balon, and she claims the salt throne. And someone's like someone's all pissed because we've never had they've never had a queen and he's heckling her. And she's like, Yeah, there's you know, there's lots of things we've never done. Like we've never made our mark upon this world. And I was like, oh man, that was a good way to spin that. Like maybe with a woman we can. (laughs) Pretty clever. Yeah. (laughs) And she's talking about how nobody's taken the Ironborn seriously, that they'll, uh, they'll conquer them and humiliate them and then just go right back to forgetting that they exist. And she's really winning the people. They're like, yeah, they don't take us seriously. And she's getting them all hyped up. And she's talking about building a fleet. And this one guy interrupts her and he's like, you can't be queen. Like, this is ridiculous. A woman will, will not lead us. And definitely not when Balon's own living male heir has just returned as well. It's like, dude, have you seen on the, have you seen Theon lately? <laughs> yeah. so Does he look fit to roll? <laughs> yeah, seriously. And he's totally put on the spot here. And I'm like, Oh God, this can't turn out well. Like he's got to say something in favor of Yara. And she's wondering, is he going to do it? Like, is he going to try to take it for himself or is he going to pump me? Like he said he would. And I'm just thinking, geez, is it, is it still Theon or is it reek in there? You know, <laughs> like this, is he going to even be able to speak publicly? Cause public speaking <laughs> isn't necessarily the easiest thing. And after coming out of your reek phase, you know, it might not be great to go up in front of a crowd with all that pressure, but he handles it like a champ, man. Uh, he's Theon at this point which is pretty significant. Like his, his identity crisis is partly over. Like Reek has been eliminated and he's back to where he was at the beginning of the story. Basically he's Theon. Um, he just still has to work out whether or not he's a Stark or a Greyjoy or both. Uh, as we learn from John, you know, be both or whatever he says next season. Right. Yeah. So he's got his first name figured out now. Now he's got to figure out his last name, <laughs> which is kind of funny. <laughs> So he he goes into a really impassioned speech pumping Yara here about how she's the rightful ruler that people who have sailed under her and worked with her know what she is, that she's a reaver. (laughs) She's a warrior. She's ironborn. (laughs) We'll find no better leader. This is our queen. And uh, I'm just thinking like, wow, this is a really powerful speech. Good job, Theon. Like, I didn't know he had it in him anymore, you know? This is a humble person with the... Uh, it's it's a person with the charisma of old Theon from season one who is articulate and enthusiastic 
and like dramatic and um you know charismatic but he's also humble at this point so he's not pumping himself here he's he's genuinely speaking about his sister and in, in, in this favorable manner which is a nice improvement on his initial character from the show while harnessing the positive things about his initial character which is cool yeah for sure so then all of a sudden as people are starting to cheer and things are starting to go pretty well that whole speech seems really successful like yara is on top of this thing until all of a sudden i'm here on gray joy <laughs> i claim the salt throne yeah and <laughs> all of a sudden out of nowhere from thousands of miles away, after like 20 years being gone, Euron Greyjoy appears. It's like, dude, what the fuck are you doing here? And everyone is just like silent as the crowd parts. And he approaches, he addresses uh, Yara and Theon, niece, nephew, little Theon, you know, <laughs> pats him on the cheek hilariously. Such like a de- like a degrading like. I heard you have no cock. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Heard you managed to fuck things right into the ground. <laughs> Which is a great way to put it. Literally. Yeah. Captured a castle you couldn't keep. Got yourself taken prisoner. Even heard you have no cock. I'm like, damn, burn. He is playing for keeps here. And Theon looks pretty humiliated, uh, rightly so. And everybody's laughing and everything like that. And uh, so he po- he's pointing pointing at Yara and and further rubs it in to re- to Theon explains why you think a woman can be king, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> is kind of funny, uh, you know, double burn oh, and so they're like, where the fuck did you come from? When did you get back? And he's like, a few days ago, I had some things to take care of, long overdue. And Yara realizes what that means. And she's like, I thought this was pretty slick too. Um, She refers to herself as queen here, basically. She's like, oh, I'm glad you've arrived. Now I know what my first act as queen will be. (laughs) Like, ooh, Mm -hmm. confident and well played. Confident. I love it. To execute the man who killed my father. And the crowd is like, oh. (laughs) And uh, in such a G, man, in uh, another well-played moment well-played Euron. he just comes right out and admits it like yeah i killed him i threw him right over the rope bridge and watched him fall he was an old fucking man <laughs> yeah he was holding us back got us into all these wars we couldn't win ruined our reputation or didn't do anything to help our reputation at least um yeah like I apologize to you all for not killing him years ago, which I thought was a great line. (laughs) So funny, really clever. And that's like a crowd winner. Like, you know, if if you can admit to having killed the previous King and get them on your side by saying you should have done it beforehand and actually having that work, like that's pretty, pretty slick right there. Yeah, so for sure. Theon tries to spin it on him again, and he's like, "Yeah, well, maybe you could have done that if you were around. Like, what the hell, man? You've you've been gone forever. Like, how are we supposed to take you as as a leader when you're never here for us, basically?" And uh, he's like, "Yeah," he admits it, you know, everything like that. And Theon's like, "Well, Yara was here, you know, and being she's Ironborn. Yeah, being Ironborn, leading Ironborn, get getting ready to restore us to glory." And Euron's like, yeah, how? And this is when Yara pipes in, I'll build the largest fleet the world has ever seen. And uh, Euron's like, right, except 
I'm going to build the fleet because I'm the right person to you like to lead it because I know how to use it. I've sailed all over the world. You talk about ironborn being seamen, seafaring people. I am the king of all seafaring people. I've seen more of the sea than all of you combined. I loved that line. Yeah, really, really poignant. He's like, I've like I've said sa- I've sailed all around the planet, and there's somebody that we can use on our team across the ocean. Somebody who hates the High Lords just as much as we do. Someone with a huge army and three dragons. And no husband. I'm going to build that fleet. <laughs> he makes fun of Theon for having said gallivant. Yeah, that what cockless guys say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great line. And I'm going to gallivant right over there and give the fleet to Daenerys Targaryen along with my big cock. And everyone's like, Yurr! they're laughing and everything. And uh, I thought this was interesting. I was wondering if it maybe it foreshadows him betraying Cersei and handing Daenerys like keys to the kingdom or some valuable info that helps destroy Cersei or like or something like that in hopes of winning Daenerys's hand, which is his seems to be his real goal, you know. Yeah, he'll settle for Cersei at, for the time being until he can betray her and turn the whole kingdom over to Danny, you know, something like that. Who knows, right? He's a wild card. Yes, yes, absolutely. I have mixed feelings about Euron as a character. Sure. I especially you're not in alone. You're definitely the, not alone. Yeah, I, I like aspects of him. I dislike many aspects of him. He's very manic. He's very I don't know. I just I'm not sure how I feel how he adds to the enjoyment of the story. Sure. Other than being a catalyst of um like disruption for Yara's and Theon's story. Yeah. Sort of in a, in a similar way to how Ramsey was introduced around the time that Joffrey was dying. They had to, yeah, they had to yeah. introduce Euron at around the time Ramsey is dying to have like a new big, bad evil, like dude kind of show up <laughs> a human one, at least. I mean, we have the night King and we have Cersei, but somebody to replace the Ramsey dynamic, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess that's how I feel about him. And whether or not that's a good idea is, could be debated, you know. Yeah, I mean, in this episode, we get to see he's charismatic, he's a little crazy. And I liked him up until I found one line, and I'm skipping up ahead a little bit here is when he wakes up or when he coughs up all the water and he looks around. Right, 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 right. And he's like, Where's my niece and nephew? Like, let's go murder them. I was like, what the fuck? Let's go murder them. <laughs> like, damn. Yeah, he's crazy. <laughs> like, that's like kind of weird. I, I just found that whole. This is the guy, though, that totally just admitted to killing his brother and watching him fall. And I know, <laughs> I know. And in season seven, we get like his craziness, like when he abducts Yara and he's like I said, he's manic almost like a little bit oh, wild. Yeah. Very, very so. so. I do have mixed feelings about him as a character. I like him. I'm glad he's on the show because he adds dynamic, but there are certain aspects of his character that I can do without. Sure. I don't find that are necessary for the development of the storyline. I think that that's pretty common among the fan base as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm normal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm average. (laughs) Uh, You're, you're above average, Rachel. 
Oh, give yourself some thanks, credit. man. You too. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, Chris Pine in Wonder Woman. I'm above average for, for a man, you know, <laughs> for a specimen of my sex. So Yara's like, you're going to seduce the dragon queen. It's like, nope, the fleet's going to seduce her. But together, we're going to take the seven kingdoms. And uh, he finishes it off with a really awesome line that totally won this, this king's moot for him. Adding his confidence in with the hardcore ironborn values that have been thrown in our face through the whole series. He says, I wasn't born to be king. I paid the iron price. And here I stand. And you remember that whole thing about the gold price or the iron price? Yeah. 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 That so means, good. You know, he, he took a life. Yeah. He fought for it. He, he got it. The, he earned it. You know, he, he, yeah. Like the hard way, basically. Yeah. He killed to get there. That's pretty great. He literally did too. He killed the last king. He killed his to brother. Yeah. King. So he paid, literally paid the iron price, which is awesome. That's really cool. And everybody starts chanting and excited. And I'm like, damn, well, that won that for him. <laughs> you know, Theon and Yar better get the hell out of there, which they start to do. They start booking it. Yeah, they and, realize uh, instantly that they need to get the hell out. Totally. And that's what they do. Yeah. So it cuts to the scene of the inauguration, you could say, of the Ironborn King. And Euron is presiding over the ceremony where they drown the king. It doesn't it doesn't doesn't sound like a great plan. I uh, talk about like an intense way to get sworn in, like yeah. get initiated. Like, yeah, like Hey, if you don't like come back, you're going to die. I'm pretty like, sure that this is common in the ironborn culture too. Like all the ironborn males do this in early, like in uh, like their teens or something like that. Like this is part of the ritual of becoming a drowned man. <laughs> Um, in their religion, oh. I'm pretty sure it's like everybody's drowned like this. Coming back to life, like what is dead may never die. So yeah. they're going to like drown them. And then if they come back, yeah, they're, they're ironborn. For life, if they yeah. don't come back, like good riddance, because we don't want weakness like that in our Yeah, exactly. And having, having all been drowned, they all can like say what's dead may never die. Like they've all been dead kind of. Um, so it gives them courage to go forward and yeah, from a wiki of ice and fire on the drowned god page. Baptism. The priests of the drowned god know how to drown a man and then bring him back to life using cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, which is called the kiss of life. This is done as part of the rites of the god, consecrating the drowned person to him. Not all men are successfully revived, however. Yeah, it's just interesting tradition, right? <laughs> it's very... Very interesting. I love that they right. resemble so much like the Vikings. I know we talk about that and the history of. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We yeah we covered that last episode actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But so, yeah, very much so. Yeah, I like how Aaron is um, like narrating, kind of giving the speech as Euron's drowning. Let the fish eat the scales off his eyes. <laughs> you know, may <laughs> Euron, your servant, be born again from the sea as you were. Bless him with salt. Bless him with stone. Bless him with steel. What is dead may never die, but rises again, harder and stronger. Which is about like what he's literally doing: dying, being reborn as a king, harder and stronger. And it's just really cool, perfect uh, speech to be giving as this is going on. Yeah, I love how he goes on. He goes, let the old Euron drown. Let his lungs fill with seawater. Yeah. And then he like takes that gasping breath underwater. Yeah. Yeah. Literally fills his own lungs. Like, yeah, it's pretty intense. 
And uh, so they drag him out of the water, lay him on his back, and he ends up, you know, one of those guys kind of walks closer to see if he's dead, and he spits out a bunch of water, rolls over, coughs a bunch of water out, and Aaron places the driftwood crown on his head, which is pretty cool, kind of cool crown made out of driftwood. Gotta love that. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty rustic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And his first sentiment, like you said, upon waking basically is, who's seen, (laughs) who's seen uh, my niece and nephew? Let's go murder them. (laughs) And then they like hike up the mountain. They're all, and that uh, Aaron's chain is like swinging back and forth and they're marching (laughs) and then off in the distance, they see all their best ships. Gone. Yeah. And Euron handles this very well, I must say. He goes, go back to your homes, chop down all the trees, quarter saw the timber and start building. I want every man bending planks. I want every woman spending flax for sails. Yeah. Build me a thousand ships and I will give you this world. Yeah. It's like, holy fuck. That's intense. Pretty intense. Yeah. And he, he's got a, like a pretty confident, good look on his face when he says that too. I thought it was pretty well played by the actor. For sure. So what do we got next? Um, we're back in Marine as far as my next notes go. Varys and Masande and Grey Worm are all together and Tyrion's over pouring himself a glass of wine. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, and we're getting a report. On patrol. A report about patrol. Patrol. <laughs> He's reporting about patrol. <laughs> patrol. <laughs> um, Grey Worm has discovered that there's no more killings carried out by the Sons of the Harpy since they had the Masters as their guests. A fragile peace has taken hold. A fragile, very fragile. And Tyrion is like, dude, it's not enough to have peace. They need to know that Danny is responsible. That's true. It's pretty important. Yeah. And Masande has a good point here. She goes, well, the people know who brought them freedom. But Tyrion's like, yeah, I get it. But who brought them the security? Like freedom was one thing. And now we've been on the brink of civil war. Like who's going to protect them? Right. Equally as important. And again, to your point, last episode of women arising in planetos, you know, Vera says it sounds like quite a hero. Where where should we find him? Yeah. Tyrion goes, who said anything about him? Yeah, just like Varys said uh, mm-hmm. to him <laughs> earlier. Uh, was it last season, I guess? When yeah. yeah. When uh, Tyrion arrives in, in uh, Pentos. Oh, that's right. That's right. Nice. Yeah. So what do you got next? I have back up at Castle Black. Yep, that's where I am now, too. Okay, cool. This is when Sansa tells um, John about her black, the blackfish take, retaking River Run. Ah, uh, yes. And t- d- discussing um, which houses of the North will flock to their cause. Right. Yeah. They've, they're talking about the three biggest houses, um, which are the Umbers, the Karstarks, and the Manderleys. Unfortunately, Umbers and the Karstarks are both, both with the Boltons at this point already. The, the Umbers declared when they didn't have to, but the, the Karstarks had declared when they th- thought they didn't have a choice, basically. Um, but as Davos points out, a Stark beheaded the father of the current Karstark lord, so they're probably not really likely to join them that either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the other big house that they mentioned, the Manderleys, 
much more important house from White Harbor in the books. Wyman Manderley is one of the best characters. They call him Lord Too Fat to Sit a Horse. Oh, I remember him from the books. Yeah, he's great. I remember his description and people feeling sorry for the horses. <laughs> yeah, and these like custom chairs made, like super wide chairs and stuff. Yeah. He's yeah. he's a really important character in the books. Uh great character. I love that guy. Davos is at White Harbor with him for a little bit. It's cool. Nice. So Sansa's like, fuck the Umbers, basically. They gave Rick on to the Boltons. They can hang. They can hang. So that was a kind of a cool thing. John is talking about how they can't defend the North from there with the Boltons fighting them from the South and the, the Whites and the White Walkers coming from the North. So strategically, they need to take Winterfell. So they're just trying to like figure out how to make it happen. They eventually decide to start building um, an army with all the smaller houses because all combined, they'll equal the, <laughs> the power of the three big houses. Glover, Mormont, Kerwin, Mason, and Hornwood. Yep. Mormont. And that's two dozen more. And Manderley. Uh, yeah, two dozen more. We do get to see Wyman Manderley when they meet with all the Northern Lords very briefly, but mm-hmm. he's not as fat as in the books, unfortunately. Isn't he the one that does the King of the North for John? Isn't he the one that starts it? Um, I, th- I think Lady Liana starts that technically, but he's he's one of the first people oh, involved no, for sure. It might be the Glover guy. Yeah, I don't remember. We'll, I can't we'll see. wait for that scene. Yeah, yeah it's gonna be awesome. So there's an interesting little interaction with between Davos and Sansa, where Davos presumes to speak on northern politics, basically, and Sansa's like, "Well, how well do you know the North, Sir Davos?" He's like, "Precious little." <laughs> yeah, I love that line. <laughs> He's like, "I may not know the North, but I know men. They're more or less the same in any corner of the world." And even the bravest of them don't want to see their wives and children skinned for a lost cause. He basically tells John, like, if we're going to get these people to fight with us, they need to think and, like, really believe that they can win, that it's not in vain, that they're not sacrificing everything for a lost cause, basically. So that's an important point. And uh, so they decide to, you know, work work their way up, just combine people, as many of these small houses as as they can. And this is sort of uh, the sparking of the idea to travel around the north and parlay with uh, various leaders and everything. And what a long time to do that, to go to all these little houses. Like, it's going to eat up so much time and they yeah. don't have a lot of time. Plus, like, Stannis' whole army was just trapped in the snow. Like, it's not safe <laughs> at this point to do that, not really. It's safe to travel. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty bad idea. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's the idea we have. You know, like, what do you say to Sam? <laughs> What's your idea? <laughs> yeah, right. It's yeah. true. So they just kind of have to do what they can. And this is when Sansa says that also the the Tullys have an army that the Blackfish has reformed their their army down there and retaken River Run. And Jon Snow's like, how do you know that? Where'd you, where'd you find that out? And Sansa lies. Why do you think she lies here? Um... Good question. Maybe she doesn't want to advertise that she has a relationship with Littlefinger. That could be one. Um, it could be. I think we're led to believe that she lies because of the half-brother paranoia that Littlefinger put in her mind earlier in the episode. Remember, he's yeah. like, your brother's army. Half-brother. You know? <laughs> I honestly think it's like she just wants to sound smart in front of these people because she gets really happy when she like gets to divulge that 
piece of strategic information. Oh yeah, she blurts it out and then she has to cover for it. But but why does she feel like she has to cover? You know, that's the question. Like, oh, I have something to contribute to this conversation. And then they kind of turn to her and instead of like losing face and saying like, oh, well, I heard that from somebody else. She's like, oh no, I, I was listening to Ramsey talk about it. That is hearing it from somebody else. Somebody who is in a position of power when she wasn't. It would make her sound that's even true. more badass if she was like getting information from Littlefinger. You know what I mean? Like she's got like a network at her hands. I don't know, but I think your 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 sentiment rings true too that Littlefinger isn't necessarily the best yeah. person to align yourself with. And I think Sansa's smart enough to know that. Right. So whereas we're led to believe that Sansa may be paranoid about John's loyalty. I think she's just trying to hide to the fact that she's, you know, meeting with Littlefinger because he's not like he's got a bad reputation yeah. and everything like that. So that's my interpretation of it. But yeah. Davos is stoked about this because he says the Blackfish is a legend <laughs> and his support would mean a great deal. Um, and Sansa's like smiling and everything. Uh, she's like, yep. Yeah. I love Davos. He's looking on the bright side. Stark, Tully, a few more houses almost starts to look like a winning side. <laughs> yeah. He's the man. And Sansa's the only one that smiles. <laughs> yep. So what do you got next? I have Brienne and Sansa. Nice. And actually Brienne yeah, asks Sansa why she lied to John. Right. She's like, why didn't you tell him the truth? And she doesn't really see anything. <laughs> That's true. It's funny. Yeah. She's like, well, I don't like leaving you here alone, Sansa, because Sansa's trying to get her to go down to treat with the blackfish. I, it was funny. She she said, my uncle will talk to you and I know you'll know how to talk to him, to, to Brandon. I'm like, wait, why do you think Brandon knows how to talk to the Lord of River Run? Like, does she have any diplomatic experience? I think because they're both like knights and or not knights, but like warriors. warriors. Yeah, maybe. I think Brienne has a certain gruffness about her yeah, and yeah, yeah, the blackfish yeah. is known for his gruffness. So I think Sansa can see that um, Brienne's character can hold a candle to the blackfish and she won't get easily scared off by him. Yeah, maybe. So Brienne's like, you know, like I don't like leaving, leaving you here. And Sansa's like, what with John? And she, she doesn't have any problems with John. He seems trustworthy, even though he's a little bit brooding perhaps. <laughs> Although she says that's understandable considering. So they must know that he's been resurrected brooding after being killed and everything like that. Little does she know he's been brooding his, his whole, whole life. life. Yeah. But she's wary about the others, obviously Davos and Melisandre who helped kill her King with blood magic. Nonetheless, I would be very wary of leaving Sansa with, the, with Melisandre too, if I were Brienne. Right. And they appear to have abandoned Stannis <laughs> from Brienne's perspective as he was paying his, his for his crime being executed. They were out looking for better prospects of victory, you know, from her, what she thinks, which is funny because that's kind of true from Melisandre's perspective Yeah, with Mel for sure, but not from Davos. Davos was following orders to go back to Castle Black. Plus, and he was not in the know about the blood magic either until all of a sudden it was happening. You know, all he knew is that he needed to take Melisandre somewhere until she turned around with a nine month pregnant belly and yeah. birthed a demon. And he's like, what the hell? And then was instantly skinny again. Yeah. Yep. So we don't, <laughs> <laughs> so we don't get an answer, unfortunately, from, from uh, Sansa about why she killed, why, why, she, why she lied to John. But maybe uh, she doesn't know at this point. Yeah. Or maybe, yeah. Maybe it just like was instinct. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. That's, that's and another good option. It, she just 
doesn't really have a reason other than it just kind of like shot out of her mouth because I think she's used to lying a lot to save her butt. Right. Or whenever she's confronted or senses she's, conflict she's or learned, questioning. Yeah. She's learned to keep things close to her chest, you know, and to not to like be protective and secretive. And- well, and she recites certain things like, you know, I'm loyal to my beloved Joffrey. I'm, you know, traitor's blood. I'm a daughter of a traitor. I'm, I have traitor's blood. Like she doesn't mean all those things to herself, but she says them because that's what it, it's expected of. And yeah, I think it just kind of came out because she's, conditioned to kind of lie when she's questioned plus also everything that she's done with Littlefinger has either involved like assassinating a king or assassinating a lady of the veil or like all this underhanded shady stuff so basically she doesn't talk about anything Littlefinger related (laughs) it seems like you know she keeps all that whole all that stuff a secret maybe (laughs) yeah for sure so she just instinctively doesn't want to talk about anything related to Littlefinger and their activities (laughs) yeah I I think that might be it just after mulling it over talking about it with you Hmm, I think that might be maybe it was more of a reactionary um thing that was said verbally versus like a strategic one right so she doesn't really have a reason Mm. yeah maybe so uh anything else you want to add or you want to move on to our next uh notes that was my last note okay yeah that is my last note as well excellent nice all right so stick with us guys we'll be right back That is Pold with What Do You Mean featuring Celeste Collins. Check them out at soundcloud.com slash pold music. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> and we're skipping news this time too. Nice. So let's move right to Game of Thrones and history from Encyclopedia Britannica. Behind the Scenes, Nine Historical Inspirations for Game of Thrones by Richard Pilardi. Millions of viewers have been captivated by the fictional kingdoms depicted in HBO's fantasy series Game of Thrones, which translates the novels by George R.R. Martin to the small screen. The sometimes over-the-top violence, drama, and magic are often written off as the stuff of fiction, but there's more truth in them than than you might think. Here are some real-life people, places, things, and concepts that are surprisingly similar to Martin's remarkably detailed fantasy world. This list was adapted from a post that originally appeared on the Britannica blog. Feudalism. Westeros is governed via a feudal system, with the head of state ruling from King's Landing over the Seven Kingdoms, equivalent to the vassal states or fiefdoms. Among the vassal states are Kingdom of the North, ruled by the Stark family, and the Westerlands, ruled by the Lannisters, who have married into the royal Baratheon family. The vassal kings are liege lords to an array of minor nobility and their serfs. The former are frequently referred to as bannermen in the series because these vassals were once independent kingdoms. Me too. Bannermen, such yeah, a, great a great word, word for it. Because these vassals were once independent kingdoms, centuries worth of blood feuds and general resentment complicate their rule. 
Feudalism was the prevailing system of government in Western Europe from the 5th through the 12th centuries, providing Martin with a wealth of historical documentation to draw upon. Next, Spymaster. There are definite echoes of ruthless Elizabethan spymaster Francis Walsingham in the character of Varys, known as the Master of Whispers. He harvests information from a vast network of spies and informants and uses that capital to manipulate and coerce anyone that might be useful to him, be they commoner or royal. Like Walsingham, Varys claims that his machinations are for the good of the realm. Perhaps, indeed, they are. Their willingness to arrange or permanent solutions to troublesome Scottish and Targaryen queens, respectively, certainly testifies to the lengths to which they'll go to preserve political stability. Very interesting. Absolutely. Nomads. The tribal Dothraki society that Daenerys, mother of dragons, marries into lives a nomadic lifestyle centered upon the horse, which provides transportation, food, and spiritual inspiration. The Dothraki are somewhat analogous to the Mongols, an extant ethno-geographic group, most of whom lived in the country of Mongolia and China's inner Mongolia autonomous region. There's a show called Marco Polo, which is about the Mongols, um, which is really cool. I saw the pilot episode recently, but I've been meaning to get back into it. Really interesting. Really well done. So it's like uh, another, like, I don't think it's HBO, but something like that. You know, it's a really good show. Goddamn. Nice. I'll have to watch it. Yeah. For centuries, they were known as nomadic pastoralists who are known as superb horsemen and traveled with their livestock over the grasslands of Central Asia. Traditionally, they organized their society into clans and tribes, much like the Dothraki. The Dothraki may even more closely resemble the warlike ancient Mongols as they existed under Genghis Khan, who extended the Mongol Empire from China to Western Russia. Very interesting. Yeah, for sure. Next is incest. While incest is usually taboo in Westeros, that hasn't stopped Cersei and Jaime Lannister from carrying on an affair that resulted in three children who were passed off as her husband, Roberts. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Though Cersei and her brother are forced to hide their forbidden love, not all cultures were so prudish. The Targaryen family, (laughs) prudish, the Targaryen family to which Daenerys belongs is known for preferring incestuous marriages. In real life, Arsinoe II and her brother, Ptolemy II, married and ruled Egypt together, establishing a precedent of, quote, brother-loving, unquote. The couple were known as Philadelphoi. The custom was already well-established in Egypt prior to Greek arrival, and the Philadelphoi may have observed the custom as a means of subsuming Egyptian culture into their own. Nice. You hear that sound? What was that? What? 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 Lady Susan of House Tarkzowski. Yeah, this will be one of the hardest ones to watch. <laughs> With a stressed Definitely. out face. Yeah, this is a rough episode for sure. Big time. Nice to hear from you, Lady yeah, Susan. Thanks for writing in. Sir Matthew of House Rep. Brutal episode. Oh, yeah. You know, I've been misremembering this whole scene since the original airing. I thought it was Bran who told young Willis to hold the door, but it was really Mira. 
Bran was just the bridge that linked young Willis to current day Hodor. Yes, I agree with that. Very interesting. Yeah, good point. Watching with closed captioning, I was delighted to see that the drowned priest that they never call by his name is actually really the damp, damp fair. Ah, remember this is what I talked about. Oh, yeah. The damp hair. The damp hair. Yeah. Yeah, because Roy Dotrice did did that in the books. He would say damp fair because of the way it's spelled. I just did it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) The damp hair, Aaron Greyjoy. (laughs) Mira is now the very exclusive club of people who have killed a White Walker with Sam and John. Yes, that's what I had in my notes. And I forgot to say that as well, that she add her to the club. She just got inducted. That's right. Yeah. That's epic. This is the first time we see the spiral pattern not made out of dead bodies. Looks much nicer. (laughs) I have to agree with you, Sir Matthew. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to agree to disagree. Poor Arya has to rewatch her father's execution in the guise of entertainment. Yeah, that's horrible. Yeah. Absolutely horrible. Vicious. In this case, though, it saved her from becoming no one. Lady Lucy of House Jane found Arya watching the play really hard. Another test by Jacken, making her watch her father mocked in an attempt to bring Arya to the forefront. I feel like he doesn't want her to be no one. Yeah, that's what I've been saying. He's yeah. he does all this stuff that he's preventing prevents her it. Yeah. from taking the final leap. Yep. I love Yara trying to be queen, and I know I shouldn't, but I also love Yaron. <laughs> there you go. That's yeah. so funny. Why does Sansa lie to John about Littlefinger? It really irritates me. Just when she's stopped annoying me, she does this monumentally stupid thing which just divides them. And the half-brother thing, again, fuck off, Littlefinger. So, yeah, I think that she was probably lying just to cover up the fact that she's working with Littlefinger, because it's not a great look. No, it's not. Yeah. I mean, Um, whether it was covering up working with Littlefinger or just the um, drilled-in, you know, like, thought to lie in a situation like that, either one isn't a good situation. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Does anyone else find it a bit annoying that we don't recognize any of the White Walkers? Or do we? I was hoping to see someone we know. Oh, like the, the Whites as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe, like, uh, that's, we're going to see Hodor next year, I'm telling you. Or next, you know, in a few weeks. Oh, my goodness. We might have to, we might have to make like a little bet on that, Duncan. <laughs> Set up a poll. Will we see zombie Hodor? White Hodor? Yeah, I'll make a poll on Facebook. Post it to everywhere. That'll get some good yeah. response for sure. Yeah. Has John truly walked away from the Night's Watch? Why else tell Ed not to knock it down while he's gone? Suggests he thinks he's going back there. That is interesting. Yeah, it's like he'll be back. Like, uh, don't destroy the house while I'm gone because I want it in order when I get back. I think he knows he'll be back at some point. Maybe not as a brother of the Night's Watch, yeah. but he's not going to abandon his brothers that right. he has made like... Dolorous Ed. He's not going to leave them to fend for themselves when the long night comes. Right. Yeah. What capacity will it be in when he does return? Will he be Lord Commander again? Will he just be He's going to be fucking writing Rhaegal next to Danny, who's writing Drogon. And (laughs) it's just going to be a shit show. It's going to be fucking awesome. That's what this whole season coming up is going to be a shit show. Yeah. It's going to be so sick. Kind of like my family get togethers. (laughs) I love that Mira gives Hodor something nice to think about before he dies. Eggs and bacon. 
Although not blood sausage. Ew, yeah, I always like grimace <laughs> at that. <laughs> Goes without saying that the hold the door stuff is horrific, but so well done. Did not see it coming at all. Yeah, I think it surprised everybody. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Amazing. It's amazing. It's fucking genius. Yeah. Oh, and my random, the power of Christ compels you is a reference to the exorcist because Ma- Max von Sydow plays the priest in the exorcist and he's also the three-eyed raven. Damn, oh. I totally forgot he was the priest <laughs> in the exorcist. Holy shit. Yes. Thanks for making that connection. Yeah, that's awesome. That's excellent. Yeah. I can't help but exclaim it whenever I see him in anything. Oh, nor should you. I highly encourage yelling that every time you see Max von Sydow. Keep doing that, Lady Lucy. It's awesome. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for writing in. Yeah. Lady Sarah of House Larkham. I love this episode. We see Sansa keeping secrets from John that Littlefinger has the eerie behind him. Love the scene when Sansa gives John a replica of Ned's wolf skin. And mm-hmm. also John comments on the wolf logo that she made on her dress. We see the creation of the Night King in Bran's vision. Leaf says they made the Night King because they could defeat the first men that were trying to kill them. We see the death of regular Bran in this episode. And from next episode on, Bran is colder. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, good way to describe it. We hear for the first time from Kinvara that Danny is the chosen one. In past episodes, all we hear from Malisandra is that the chosen one is male, not yep. female. But we had heard from the, the red priestess on the bridge in Volantis that Daenerys was the chosen one as well. The princess yes. that was promised. Nice feedback. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, Lady Sarah. Sir Duncan of House Owen. Oh, another Sir Duncan. Yes. Welcome to the show. Great to hear from you. Yes. Just finished the rewatch. No easier this time around than it was the very first time. And a couple of sad face emojis. Yes. Uh, Sir Duncan, I agree. Very difficult to watch no matter what time it is. Yeah. Thanks for writing in. Nice to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon, brother. Lady Lori of House Perkins. Hold the door. (laughs) <laughs> the most I have ever cried watching Game oh. of Thrones. Oh, yeah, it's really hard. I had tears in my eyes, too, for sure. I played the fifth. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, I, I did. That's what <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> like, are you a softy? <laughs> yeah, I'm total softy for Game of Thrones. Lady Lori goes on to say, the sacrifice of Hodor was just heartbreaking. It was so hard to watch. I cannot watch it now without crying. Ugh. Yep. Brutal. For so sure. Brutal. For sure, girlfriend. Totally. Lady Steph K of House Cooper says, Worst. <laughs> <laughs> I feel Hold your door. pain. Lady Steph K, I feel your pain. Lady Sarah of the Dust Bunnies. <laughs> I love that. Nice to hear from you again. Yeah, absolutely. This one was another tearjerker. See my last email. <laughs> <laughs> Hodor was and still is a symbol of hope and love. The show has a way of taking you on a roller coaster of emotions. Oh, goodness. I couldn't agree more. Totally. But Hodor was just good. No hidden agenda. We never saw him do anything selfish. Yep. He was just love. I couldn't agree more with this. I love it. Totally. Totally. I want to believe that no matter what Bran sees from then on, 
he keeps the memory of what Summer and Hodor gave for him. Mm-hmm. Thanks again, guys and gals. Hold the door. Still too soon. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That was so good. Great to hear from you. Thanks for writing. It was really good. Sir Patrick of Hindsight. I just wanted to clarify that the saying, we make peace with our enemies, was Baelish. I had thought it was Tywin because of the term clever man. Elena refers to Tywin as a clever man and speaks of outliving clever men in season seven. All Lannisters claim descent from a clever land. Oh, and Tywin says something very similar to Cersei regarding marrying Loras as he displays this, quote, wisdom, unquote, in trying to ally with Oberyn. If Tyrion hadn't shot Tywin before Oberyn's poison had run its course, he'd perhaps be more cautious about, quote, making peace, unquote, with enemies. Oh, and by the way, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That quote is originally from Sun Tzu's The Art of War, not The Godfather. Thanks for letting me know, Sir Patrick. I did not know that. Good to hear from you, brother. Hello, Sir Duncan and Lady Rachel. This is Caroline Collins, Lady Caroline Collins, uh, calling in for the episode The Door, which is one of my absolute favorite, favorite episodes of all time. And I, I just had to leave a voicemail for this one. Uh, it's been it's been a while since I've called, I know, but I'm uh, trying, to, trying to get busy here with grad school. So no uh, pressure, I don't have a Lady huge Caroline. amount of time. Always good to hear anyway, from you. Uh, so the first scene I wanted to talk about was Littlefinger in Molestown. Um, and he's meeting Sansa again in a brothel. And he meets her. He meets a lot of people in brothels over this whole series. Um, and the first time it got me thinking to like the first time he met Catelyn was we see him with Catelyn was in a in the brothel in King's Landing, and he he meets Ned in the brothel in King's Landing as well. And uh, and it's uh, so it's it's a pretty big pattern for him. And I'm not sure it's the safest place, really. Like, he keeps having these intimate conversations with people. And it's in a place where there's lots of whores around. There's lots of listening ears. And I'm sure that prostitutes are very good at talking with their clients. And uh, so it's it's interesting to me that he would choose places like that to talk um, with people. But it's... Uh, anyway, she... He's he's manipulating her and he's doing a really good job of sowing the seeds of doubt about John and uh, giving him her information that she can use and uh, trying to make up for his his mistakes. But, you know, the in the back behind the scenes footage that they had later on, um, they were saying how she's not manipulating him. But I think she is. She's she's. Um, She's telling him how horrible her experience has been, how much pain she's in, and what what cause what what's the reason for her saying that if not to make him feel bad, to make him feel guilty, and to hopefully get him to to do things for her to make up for his mistake. And it's just it's interesting because he she knows that he has feelings for her, and she knows that she can manipulate him in that way. So it's it's pretty clear that that's that's her. And goal. She doesn't want to be with him, but she knows she can use his feelings um, to uh, to get him to do what she wants him to do. So I thought that was really interesting uh, that back and forth and how she's already holding things back from from John. And uh, I think it's a pattern that we're, we're we see going into season seven as well, where we're not entirely sure whose side she's on because she's been so manipulated by Littlefinger and by Cersei and 
she's the kind of person that could turn on someone if it was in her best interest, if she saw it as the right thing to do. Good point. Like um, turning on Arya with the Joffrey situation. So it's really interesting to have her be that kind of character now. She's been so, um, you know, loyal and, and uh, stark, starky for so long that it's it's kind of cool to have somebody in the in the in the fray that's going to mess things up a little bit. And then the Mummer show, I was really interested by the Mummer show, mainly because I'm reading Fire and Blood, and I'm sure a lot of the read, uh, the listeners are as well. Um, I'm a little slower than I'd like to be with it, because I don't have a whole lot of time for reading for pleasure, but it's um, really enjoying uh, going through it. And one of the things that it made me think of with this Mummer show is that, you know, they're depicting the Free City's point of view on the Game of Thrones, basically, and what happens during that time period. And they get a lot of the events right, obviously. They get um, the death of Ned Stark. They get um, the death of Robert Baratheon. And, but they get a lot of the characters wrong. They get a lot of the motives wrong um, because they're going by what the powers that be say the story is. Right, because the Lannisters are now in power in um, in King's Landing, and the the big guys in uh, Bravos, the the Iron Bank, are are backing. They're still backing the Iron Throne. They're still backing the Lannisters on the Iron Throne. So they want that story to be uh, the the story that the common people of Bravos believe. And hopefully that's going to spread throughout the free cities is that, you know, um, Joffrey was the good guy and now Tommen's the good guy. And that's the person that you should believe in. Um, So I thought that was really interesting because it also parallels fire and blood. You know, we have all these different points of view on the history of the Targaryens. And, you know, it comes from Grand Maesters and from Septons and from, uh, you know, fools in the court. And uh, an occasional, you know, the occasional, um, you know, work of, of, you know, fiction or whatever it is that comes out of that period of time. And, uh, and you're also getting the word of the Citadel, which is a little twisted as well. So you have to think about all these events that are happening. And it's possible that the events were correct, but the motives of the people that are um, involved in them may not be quite right. So... I'm taking the whole thing with fire and blood definitely with a grain of salt. And I love how he gives you a few options for things that may have happened. And it's like, you can kind of pick one, (laughs) which one do you think is the most likely? Um, And uh, so that was really cool to, to think about that mummer show and how that um, parallels uh, some of the historic works. And if you haven't read the world of ice and fire and fire and blood, uh, if you enjoy the show and the books, definitely, um, go out and get them because they're amazing books. They're really fun to read. And then we have The Queen's Moot, which speaking of the books, I just, um, this is what really got me into the Iron Islands before I was kind of like, meh, they're not that great. Um, But getting into the the Queen's Moot or the King's Moot and the idea of uh, democracy, kind of like, you know, pirates. And I kind of connect this with pirates a little bit. And I'll talk about that afterwards. But you know, on a on a pirate ship, the captain is chosen by a vote. The men vote on who the captain is, and if the captain's not doing right by his crew, then he gets mutinied upon and kicked kicked off the ship. So uh, leadership is uh, is transitional. <laughs> there's always someone who's who's looking to get up to the top, and there's always somebody who's trying to hold on to that seat. And um, the interesting thing about the, you know, the ancient king's moots is that, you know, that's really the closest thing that we have in this world, maybe apart from the triarchy um, in the free cities. 
it's the closest thing that we can come to like a free democracy system. And it's really cool because, you know, we're looking forward in this in this process. And Tyrion has kind of hinted at that, that that might be a good idea for the Seven Kingdoms further on. So I'm kind of paying attention a lot to the whole King's Moot, Queen's Moot situation. Um, but the arrival of Euron, and I thought it was funny how uh, last season he kind of turned into this Jack Sparrow type character. <laughs> and uh, and right at the end, I saw the parallel to the Pirates of the Caribbean where like um, Theon and um, Yara go sailing away with the fleet. And I'm like, bloody pirates. <laughs> it was really funny at the end. Um, but yeah, that was because it, it is interesting having um, characters like that as your um as your protagonists, people that have questionable morals and they're always looking out for themselves and there's a possibility that they could turn everything around when, when you least expect it and, and look out for number one. So it's, it's really cool to see that. And Agreed. I, that's what someone, one thing I love about Game of Thrones and it's, it's what I love about Pirates of the Caribbean too. It just makes the whole story more interesting when you're not sure what the character's going to do. Um, and then the, uh, Finally, the well, there's the heart tree scene, um, which I thought was really interesting. I never noticed before that the heart tree, after um, Bran comes back, you know, he sees the making of the White Walkers and he sees the guy get stabbed in the heart with the dragon glass. And then he comes back to that when the um, with, without the permission of the um, of the three eyed raven and he sees the the heart tree and it's been split in two and i couldn't help wonder you know there's a lot of um imagery of the heart trees uh getting destroyed um you know in in the books and and what that means um because the if the heart tree is destroyed um yes the eyes can't see anymore but there's still some there's still some magic in that area um and definitely with the circling of rocks and everything it's still a very magical place and i wondered what the splitting of the heart tree might represent if it was like the um if it was just the destruction of the the magic of the children of the forest or whether it was like a splitting of maybe the children of the forest have some magic and the white walkers have some of the magic um and maybe that was what it meant um not really sure so i'm interested to hear your thoughts on that i thought that was kind of an interesting thing that i'd never noticed before damn um, i don't know i'd have to think about it and then uh finally the end with uh, Hodor, and I did notice when Mira grabbed the sword this time, I was looking for it. I know somebody posted on the Facebook page um, that that was really a cool catch, that she grabs the sword as she's running inside the door. And I did notice that it's like center of the camera. Um, so, And she very clearly grabs a sword there. So there might be something to that, but I'm not sure if they're going to follow through with it or not. It's a sort of thing where, you know, they might be planting seeds kind of like Martin does with the books and then they, they might choose to go with it or they might choose that they say that they don't have enough time to follow that storyline and they might have to cut it. But I'll be looking for that later on. And thanks to whoever pointed that out. That's a super cool catch. Um, Maybe and then Sir finally the, when the White Walkers come, they just step right through the fire and while the whites are held back. And I'm always super, I notice, I'm trying to pay attention a lot to what happens with the White Walkers and fire and how they interact because we're going to see that in season eight with uh, the dragons coming to face the White Walkers. And uh, if they are sort of immune to fire, you could imagine like a, a dragon just trying to roast them like it did Dickon and, um, and Randall Tarly. And is that possible for a White Walker to survive that? It's a possibility, you know, so I'm, I'm not really sure if they are immune to fire, then um, there might be 
um, if it's dragon fire, you know, we talk about dragon glass, um, so that, you know, that might be different, um, dragon fire versus regular fire. They might not be immune to that. I like that. So, uh, interesting to think about that for later on. And then, um, I just had a, a, a sad face with some tears for summer and for Hodor. That's, that's one thing that I don't like about this season is the fact that some, so many dire wolves meet their end and, um, it really, really cuts down the number of dire wolves that are still left in the world. So it stinks. But um, that's all I have time for right now. Um, love you guys. And I can't wait to hear your take on this amazing, amazing episode. And um, looking forward to hearing you guys for Battle of the Bastards. Another one of my very, very favorite episodes. Um, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Thanks so much, Lady Caroline. That was a great, great voicemail. Lots of good stuff in there. It was so nice to hear from you, Lady Caroline. We love your feedback. Yes, as always. And I hope you have time to call for the Battle of the Bastards. And now, notes from Lady Lisa of House Sky for Season 6, Episode 5, The Door. Episode theme, time and history, door to the past. History lessons are everywhere. Show starts with a slow zoom in on the tree where the children of the forest made the White Walkers. It shows it in a time before winter began and then after with the horse bits. The Starks are coming home again and establishing their roots and effectively sewing time together. And in fact, we get to see Sansa tap into her history and get back to her roots with her love of sewing. We later come to understand that the thing she was making was for Jon, symbolically sewing him into the fabric of their family history. This is a huge moment because prior to this, she did not view Jon as part of the family. Arya is perched in the audience of the Mummer's performance in the same way that she was perched on a statue at Ned's execution. She is reliving her history and seeing it from the perspective of outsiders in this play about the War of the Five Kings. I'm not sure if the narrative of the play is dishonest, ignorant, or both. Anyone that has played the game Telephone knows that facts get distorted as information travels through the grapevine. <laughs> so true. But the truth never matters in this world, so it wouldn't make a difference anyway. Arya is enlightened about the history of the faceless men by Jockin in, in his history lesson in the Hall of Faces. Varys gets a slap in the face from time when Kinvara scared the bejesus out of him when mentioning his past. Side note, his riddle is shown in real time in this scene when he and Tyrion are trying to figure out how to stay in power. Money isn't going to help them, information isn't, so let's try religion. And, of course, Bran is getting all the history lessons and all the root metaphors. It starts off with a massive reveal that the White Walkers were created by the Children of the Forest. But why did the Children need protection from men? The First Men invaded Westeros, where the Children of the Forest already roamed free. The First Men were cutting down their trees and invading their lands, so began 2,000 years of warring between the First Men and the Children of the Forest. The Children of the Forest did some kind of magic to break down the Arm of Dorne, the land bridge the First Men were using to walk over from Essos to try to stop men. They eventually made a pact for peace. After the pact was the Age of Heroes, a time of peace and prosperity. This is when Bran the Builder was building Winterfell. Another 2,000 years after the pact was signed and the Long Night happened. This is when the Others came and the White Walkers appeared. The show is saying that the children created the walkers as a weapon of war. But wait, did the children of the forest break the pact and make the white walkers anyway? Why is the timeline different in the show? Maybe they did in fact create the walkers before the pact and it took a long time to lose control of them? 
This is not a new idea when it comes to fantasy tropes. The idea that a conscious being, such as men, in this case the children of the forest, create the things that eventually become sentient and destroy them. So what can you do to destroy it? That's where Bran and Sam come in with their knowledge of the dragonglass. The legend of the last hero involves that hero seeking out the children to gain knowledge. From a wiki of ice and fire, legends of the north state that the last hero and his companions went in search of the children of the forest during the long night thousands of years ago. The only survivor of the company, after attacks from giants, whites, and others, the last hero eventually reached the children and gained their assistance. The Night's Watch then formed and won the battle for the dawn. This ended the generation-long winter and sent the others into retreat, possibly to the land of always winter. The fate of the last hero is unknown. Some of us believe that John is going to fill the role of Lightbringer, and Bran and Sam will help him with their knowledge. Hodor slash Willis, Bran walking through time and space to tap into Hodor. This scene is self-explanatory, but something I didn't think about before is that poor Willis had to experience his death as a child, and then had to process all of that on his own. John has to do the same thing, but he can at least talk about it. I wonder if Hodor knew all along. The camera lingers on him when Bloodraven is talking about Jojen knowing he was going to die, but he came anyway. Did Hodor know what to expect and came anyway? I think so. Poor thing was forced to commit suicide against his will if there is no way for him to have changed his destiny. The thought of a predestined existence is hard to wrap your mind around. This is the way time works in Game of Thrones. No matter what you do, it will always come to the same conclusion. If Hodor or Bran made a small change to try and help him to not die or go insane, it wouldn't have made a difference because something else would just slide into place to make it happen. This is known as a casual loop or self-fulfilling prophecy. The Three-Eyed Raven can't alter the timeline, but he can shepherd Bran through in short bursts to show him the important things. Ned and his father, but if you have to fight, win, etc. Side note, before Einstein realized that the universe was expanding and not rotating, his equation allowed for time travel because if the universe was rotating, then we would end up coming in full circle in time and space and ending up in the past effectively living in a predestined universe. But our home is expanding, so there is actually no risk of that. Now, if the universe was shaped like a pretzel, then it would be possible to time travel, but not practical. One would need the energy of a star, the energy of a black hole. But in principle, if you could master that energy, then you might be able to bend time into a pretzel. The mathematics of our universe says it's possible. Even Albert Einstein realized in 1949 that his own equations would allow you to go backwards in time. If the universe rotated, for example, a very simple universe, it can rotate you around until you come back into the past. But the loophole for us is that the universe expands and does not rotate. This begs the question, does Bran have the powerful energy of a, of a star or black hole? Can he manipulate time by bending it? How do the laws of physics work in Germ's universe? Germiverse. <laughs> Side note, Ed is like Harry Potter, leadership thrust upon him. Quote, it is a curious thing, Harry, but perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who have never sought it. Those who, like you, have leadership thrust upon them and take up the mantle because they must and find to their own surprise that they wear it well. J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows. Thanks so much for writing in, Lady Lisa. Great to hear from you. I always say that time travel is only possible if you can master controlling time and space because with the universe expanding like you're saying but also with um with the the earth spinning with it rotating around the sun with the sun rotating around the center of the galaxy 
with the galaxy moving through space, you, your body is never ever in the same place in space twice all throughout history. You're never in the same place twice. We're constantly moving throughout the universe. So if you were to master time and say like you wanted to pop into this place where you are right now, sitting on your couch five years in the past from now, then you'd have to master the ability to travel through time to five years ago, but also instantaneously travel through space to wherever your couch was in the universe five years ago. It'd be in a totally different place than you're in now. So basically what I'm getting at here is that time travel is impossible without teleportation as well. All right, that's our show, episode 97. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yes, thanks for listening. And a huge thank you to John Bailey, the epic voice guy from the Emmy-nominated Honest Trailers for announcing our show. We are Game of Microphones. If you'd like to donate or subscribe to support us, you can go to paypal.me slash gompodcast or patreon.com slash gompodcast. There are links to both at gameofmicrophones.com. Doing some online shopping? Go to gameofmicrophones.com and click our link to Amazon. As an Amazon associate, we earn from qualifying purchases. Any contribution you make helps, and you can help secure the continued existence of Game of Microphones. We'd like to thank our patrons, Sir Matthew of House Rep, Lady Lucy of House Roberts, Lady Candace of House Twos, Lady Terry of House Theodore, Lord Jeff of House Allen, Sirenicide, and Luke the Low Duke. Thank you guys so much for your support. We love you. Yes, we love you guys so much. And make sure to check out Sirenicide, the serialized horror drama podcast featuring me and Archmaster Stitches. Go to yes. Sirenicide.com and download it wherever you get your podcasts. We also want to give a huge thanks to my favorite person, Lady Lisa <laughs> of House Sky, Pie Romancer. Yes, thank you, Lady Lisa. Yes, if I could just like get a little sliver of your talent, if you could just like mail that to me, that'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> She's been key behind the scenes working to get Game of Microphones up and running. She's a world-class artist. I'm not even kidding. Like, I mean it when I say if you could email yeah, me some, some of that talent, that'd be great. <laughs> Message me, I'll give you my email. Yeah. <laughs> she has a really amazing illustrated children's book, The People You May See, that actually goes over, um, you know, people that your child may encounter through the course of their young life and how to deal with those situations. So I really love it. Yeah, it's about being tolerant and accepting people for who they are. Yeah. And the portraits are from people around the world who wanted to share their stories. So I love that concept. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. You can get her book available now on Amazon.com. You can also check her fine work out at fineartsbylisa.com and on Instagram and Facebook slash fineartsbylisa. Next episode, we'll be covering Season 6, Episode 6, Blood of My Blood. Give it a watch and send us your thoughts. We'd love to read them on air. If we seriously like, do. Yeah. We, we love it. Like, <laughs> totally. It's one of my favorite parts about this podcast. Yeah, the interfacing with people. It's always great to talk to you guys and get all your thoughts and love giving you guys a platform as well to share your, uh, your ideas and feedback and perspectives. So take advantage of it. 
If you'd like to call us, you can call us at 813-JOFFREY. That's 813-563-3739. If you would like to write in, you can email us at ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast. Amp slap! (laughs) You can also listen to Game of Microphones on YouTube, BitChute, and Steemit. Just search for Game of Microphones to find our channel. Likes, comments, and shares are also appreciated. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Mimes at GOM Podcast. And we're on Tumblr, too, at Game of Microphones. All right. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Should we close the gate, Lord Commander? I'm not the Lord Command. <sighs> yeah, <clears throat> close the bloody gate. She's got the same necklace on. I, you know, I saw that, saw that ruby necklace, and I was like, "Damn, yeah. this bitch must be real old, <laughs> like really freaking old." Right, he's like, "Shh, come on, we just need her on our side." Like, be quiet. Shut the fuck and up, also, dude. you don't want to piss her off because she's terrifying. <laughs> so, um, there could be some kind of symbolism in there to decipher from that or something. I don't know. And so he looks around and sees, bam, the army of the dead just chilling. And he's like, "What? What? 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 What?" And starts walking over towards them because why the fuck not, right? Did you see the first one that he walked by had like half a skull? It's sort of like when a superhero gets their powers for the first time and they they like crush a car or something accidentally. Yeah, they like don't know how to use them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Bran's like, but am I ready for this? Like, what the hell? Like, hell no. Nope, nope, you're not ready. And it's going to suck. This is when Danny finally lets Jorah back into the friend zone. Ah, yes, because he, was, he wasn't even in the friend zone before this. <laughs> he wasn't even in the friend zone. He was banished. That's so hilarious. He was banished from the friend zone. From That's the amazing. friend zone. <laughs> <laughs> you promised you would protect me. And I will. <laughs> yeah, I don't believe you, dude. You must believe me when I tell you that I will. Nope, I don't believe you. <laughs> like, what? what part of that equation made sense to you out of the frying pan and into the fire i think what he is saying is true maybe not like totally true but a worm that squirms a squirm worm oh yeah it was funny watching him squirm a little i always love it when little finger has to squirm aria getting her ass whipped by the wave (laughs) as As usual usual. he was no one (laughs) that's the obvious answer yeah robert dies and farts a whole lot <laughs> that guy would be doing the sound effects and they're oh eating. no I'm yeah. about to go. <laughs> yeah. her eyes are so expressive here too like the yeah. tears that well up in her eyes totally and- yeah she's being forced to relive the most traumatic moment in her life 
through the perverted lens of Cersei's filthy propaganda, you know, and like the twisted way that Ned was manipulated into making a false confession and then the resulting public view of, of her family as an effect of that. Got two fucking warts on my cock. I'll go away in like three to six years. You're fine. <laughs> oh, it's so brutal. It's like all bent and crooked and warty and <laughs> oh, gross! Not like what you want to see. It's so funny. <laughs> they give you like nice bibs and they give you like crazy like old man dicks. Whatever. This is too much dick talk. <laughs> we, we're always talking about bibs, bibs, bibs. Oh yeah, we do see a lot of dick in this show. <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. Dicks. <laughs> and he is super perverted. Bobano. Bobano. Yeah. Bobano. Yeah, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But yeah, he's he's funny, man. He's a perverted little guy. He's like rah, 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 like all in that girl's boobs and then talking to Lady <laughs> Crane also about like getting intimate. That was just kind of funny. And Arya is kind of smiling at all this. So she goes back to report. But she saw on patrol. Who she will kill on patrol to Jockin. It's kind of horrible to say. I loved it even more after this scene, even <laughs> though it was terrible to watch. After they stripped the life from this young man and turned him into a, a one word repeating lumbering beast for all the rest of eternity until he's shredded by a group of ice zombies. <laughs> but to make you feel or show to make you feel a certain way. To yeah. have that oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. level totally. of emotion and also that crazy light bulb that goes off and you're like, holy fuck. Right. I mean, and that's these, what we all like about this show. It's just amazing. And so Mira's like, fuck. And then he reaches back and pulls out his sword, that funky ass blade that he's got. That thing is crazy, man, right? Like a curved ice blade. It's amazing. Yeah, it's so cool. This whole scene. And the Night King hits him with that sword and he just dissolves into like a black mist. I love the way he dissolves. Yeah, in the vision. It's so cool. and just It's like liquid smoke. Yeah, it's really, really awesome. So I'm like, shit, the Three-Eyed Raven's dead? That's got to be the big event of this episode, right? The big thing that they... Where hinting is coming up by glossing over nope. the uh, <laughs> you know, the death of summer. <laughs> nope, was I wrong again? When she dies, her like life force d- stops like controlling the bomb, and it boom blows up. That's what it looked like to me. It was like yeah. So she holds it on until a big crowd has formed around her, basically, <laughs> and then yeah, kind of takes out as many as possible. Mm. So I'm like, damn, that's got to be the big thing, right? Nope, <laughs> nope, <laughs> still nope. So they get to the door. And Hodor's trying to smash through the door. Smash, smash, smash. Nan runs over and she's like, Willis, what's the matter? And yeah. He's, hold the door, hold the door. This young actor did an amazing job. Phenomenal. I, like, even just saying that, I literally just got goosebumps, like, all over my arms. Yeah. And so, yeah, we we find out that it's Hodor. That's the big thing that <laughs> that they were leading up to brushing over the deaths of Summer and the Three-Eyed Raven and Leaf. I just am going to miss him. That's yeah, same it. here. R.I.P. Hodor. R.I.P. You are always a joy. Oh, how weird. <laughs> I would say Hodor. Yeah, Hodor. I think we're going to get undead Hodor. What do you think? I have to agree. I have to agree. Right? It just makes too much sense. I 
I kind of hope we don't see undead Hodor, but I also kind of want to because it would be kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, he was right there. The Night King was right there. I would want Hodor on my own. Oh, and my no army. one burned his body. What just happened? I mean, they just like jumped off a 500 foot cliff. Epic. They fall, they like crack all into pieces, they clip back together and <laughs> crack all into pieces. Hold on one second. Do you hear that? Yeah, what is that? That's our neighbor's car. Oh, man. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Um, Yeah, so she goes, from you, from men. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So he's got his first name figured out now. Now he's got to figure out his last name, (laughs) which is kind of funny. (laughs) People who have sailed under her and worked with her know what she is, that she's a reaver. Yeah! (laughs) She's She's a a warrior. warrior. Yeah! She's ironborn. I. Yeah. I'm your on gray joy. I claim the salt throne. Yeah. And, <laughs> and everyone is just like silent as the crowd parts. And he approaches such like a, de- like a degrading, like I heard you have no cock. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Heard you managed to fuck things right into the ground. Confident. I love it. To execute the man who killed my father. And the crowd is like, oh, he was an old fucking man. <laughs> Double burn. Oh, got us into all these wars. We couldn't win. Ruined our you know, reputation or didn't do anything to help our reputation. At least I wasn't born to be king. I paid the iron price and here I stand. Yeah. So it cuts to the scene of the inauguration you could say of the ironborn king and euron is presiding over the ceremony where they drown the king it doesn't doesn't sound like a great plan i uh, talk about like an intense way to get sworn in like yeah. get initiated um gray worm has discovered that there's no more killings on patrol a report about patrol Patrol. <laughs> He's reporting about patrol. <laughs> patrol. So that's an important port part point. <laughs> um, and Sansa's like smiling and everything. Uh, She's like, yep. She doesn't have any problems with John. He seems trustworthy, even though he's a little bit brooding, perhaps. <laughs> Although she says that's understandable considering. So they must know that he's been resurrected, brooding after being killed and everything like that. Little does she know he's been brooding. His, his whole, whole life. life, yeah. All he knew is that he needed to take Melisandre somewhere. Until she turned around with a nine-month pregnant belly and yeah. birthed a demon. And he's like, what the hell? And then was instantly skinny again. Yeah. Yep. So we don't... <laughs> <laughs> you hear that sound? What was that? What? 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 This is the first time we see the spiral pattern not made out of dead bodies. Looks much nicer. <laughs> I have to agree with you, Sir Hilarious. Matthew. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to agree to disagree. Not Valley Girl this time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For all we know, Kinvara is a children of the forest. You know, like we don't know she's a human. That glamour should be anything under that. <laughs> oh my God, what if she was the... She's a gray alien. <laughs> yeah, 
Finkel is Einhorn. Finkel is Einhorn. Finkel is Einhorn. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around 200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.